Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. DC Spotlight for the week of April 12th, 2022. Rocky and I are going to talk about the books coming out today. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Don't forget, uh, if you haven't read the books and you plan on reading them, don't want them spoiled, might want to come back later. Uh, as opposed to the uh, new comic book day episode that drops every Wednesday on the Comic Source, which is spoiler free. Now, uh, that being said, if you're here because you really want to know about part five of Trial of the Amazons, or you can't wait to hear what we thought of Flashpoint Beyond Zero, you got to go and listen to those Spotlight episodes. They're, uh, they're important events, so we split them off and did uh, their own separate episodes for those. But we will be talking about the rest of the books that drop today. Overall, a pretty solid week. Um, I probably could say this every week with DC, but a little Batman heavy for my taste, or a lot Batman heavy. <laughs> Your mileage may vary. Um but yeah, it was a it was a solid week. There's some uh, some good books in here. So what do you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, it, it was a solid week. I mean, I was extremely happy with Flashpoint Beyond, and again, we did a separate video for that. That was almost an hour long. So much to talk about. So many Easter eggs. Jeff Johns' mass, you know, is just in my view, hit it out of the park. And I encourage people to check out our review of that uh, on your po Comic Source podcast or on on the on my YouTube channel here. Um, I really enjoyed Suicide Squad Blaze. We'll be talking about uh, Jeffrey Thorne does a nice job wrapping up Green Lantern number 12, bringing together a lot of disparate uh, plot points. I thought he did a good job on that. And uh, I didn't even mind uh, Naomi, uh, the second issue of Naomi. And, um, you know, Superman's Son of Canal was a little bit of a miss for me, but Batgirls, I got, I got some enjoyment out of that. I really enjoyed Tinian's opening issue of Nightmare Country for the Sandman universe. And Batman Urban Legends... Uh, was uh, I feel it's getting a little bit stale, uh, but overall I'm I'm still quite happy. In in fact, even Batman Catwoman, my my Tom King. I mean, I'm not a big fan of his Batman Catwoman work, but 
finally, I, I'm starting to catch on to what the actual plot was in Batman Catwoman, which we'll talk about. I fi- it finally came together for me. It was like a, a couple of aha moments. Oh, that's what happened. <laughs> so, so yeah, maybe it's just my I had a I had a collective brain fart for ten issues, but I finally started to come together for me. So, in any event, uh, it was it was an interesting week. Yeah, we'll kick it off with Batman eighty nine number five of six. Uh, if you haven't been reading this, this is uh, 100% Tim Burton's Batman universe. So let's say instead of the uh, Val Kilmer Batman with the Jim Carrey Riddler and the Tommy Lee Jones Two-Face, if Tim Burton had continued and, and done a third Batman film with Billy D. Williams, who was Harvey Dent in the first two films, Billy D. Williams becoming Two-Face, that's this story. It's written by Sam Hamm, who was the screenwriter for the, those two uh Tim Burton Batman films. Joe Quinones does the art. Leonardo Ito is the colorist and Clayton Cowell is the letter. Now I will say the style of art that Joe Quinones uses here, it is very, very much an animated style, very much a cartoon style with very thick lines. Uh, it suits the tone of the story very, very well for anybody who has, is not familiar with Joe Quinones. I, I really would encourage you to go check out the dial H for hero miniseries that he drew that Sam Humphreys wrote because he is a chameleon in terms of uh, art style. Like whenever uh, the dial H um, Miguel would use the dial H and, and transform depending on what era the hero he would transform was from. So I remember the first time he used it, he turned into this like monster truck guy that was like straight out of the nineties and the style that Joe Quinones used looked like it was straight out of the, 90s. So I say that to say that Joe Quinones can draw in almost any style you want, similar to Patrick Gleason. Uh, and so he's purposely choosing to go with thicker lines here in a more animated style. And again, it works very, very well for the tone of the story that's being told. And I think that the uh, the colors that Ito using, uh, very primary colors, also suits the, the story. I'm glad he didn't choose to go really, really dark because again, this is the Tim Burton Batman universe. So there could have been that tendency for Leonardo Ito to go very dark, and I'm glad that he didn't. Um, so in terms of the story itself, it feels very Tim Burton Batman, like Sam Hamm nails it. And it makes sense because, again, he wrote the screenplays for the first two. All that being said, is this for me? Nah, it's not really for me because I'm not a big fan of those Tim Burton Bat- Batman films, you know, it's just the, the aesthetic and the style, Michael Keaton as Batman, like and none of it ever really worked for me. Uh, very well. So is this a very well put together comic with fantastic art? 100%. Is the storytelling with that art by Joe Quinones done very, very well? 100%. Does Sam Hamm nail the dialogue in terms of the, the scripting and and does it sound like the Batman from that uh, universe? Does it sound like it, it has that same uh, cadence and pacing of those movies, yes, 100%. But again, he wrote the screenplay, so you would expect that. So although this is not for me, if you are a fan of those movies, you 100% should be picking this up. You will like it. You will probably love it because I think that the Billy D. Williams as Two-Face, is he's much different than any version of Two-Face we've seen before. I think this version of Two-Face would have worked very well in the big screen, especially in that uh, Tim Burton Batman universe uh, and he's probably my favorite thing about the story. So I appreciate that that works uh, well also. 
Uh, so yeah, again, it, it's just it's not necessarily for me because I'm not a fan of of this version of Batman, but this creative team is nailing it, uh, just like the creative team did for Batman '79, Robert Menditti, and Wilfredo Torres really captured the feel of the Christopher Reeve era of Superman. This creative team is doing the same thing here. So uh, I don't know if you're a big fan of Michael Keaton Batman, Rocky. What do you think of this? Uh, well, I. I think this is well done. I agree with all your comments. I I will say that this is just as well written and quite frankly, and just as respectful and paying a, a very tributary, nostalgic homage to that Batman 89 as one can realistically expect. In fact, it's the same. Everyone's really singing the praises of Superman 78. Everyone really likes what they did with Superman 78. And, uh, and well, what, pardon me, what Robert Venditti did with Superman 78 in terms of really capturing the sensibilities of that, of the Superman movie and Christopher Reeve and what have you. But this one here just, it absolutely cries out. This really does nail the, the, the feel of Batman 89. At least I feel it does. Now, but, uh, but I, I think that part of the reason why it hasn't hit as, as, as well or, it hasn't got as good word of mouth in my mind as Superman 78 is because probably because of Harvey Dent and probably because that's this and there's there's not a lot of Batman here. This is very much a Harvey Dent focused story right from the beginning. And I think that I think that's a legitimate criticism. I think it hits. I think that I think there should have been a little bit more of Michael Keaton Batman here. In fact, I remember back when uh, Christopher, when uh, Jack Nicholson won the Academy Award, there was so much talk and hype about how well Jack Nicholson played the Joker and he won the Academy Award for it that he even, he called up, he made a call out to uh, Michael Keaton when he won the award because, you know, he, you know, he said, you know, Michael Keaton, the Batman, because uh, the Joker overshadowed Michael Keaton in the first Batman. And I like Batman Returns because I thought it focused more on the Batman and Selena Kyle. Here, we, we get a little bit of Catwoman. We get a little bit of Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, but only not much. She's kind of like the Oracle. She's kind of like a Catwoman slash Oracle, uh, sort of like an anti-Oracle in this story where she sort of shows up and she, you know, Harvey Dent in this story, is he's obviously become corrupted and he wants to steal $31 million from the, from the Gotham uh, uh, locker. And of course, uh, Selena Kyle, Michelle Pfeiffer's character from the movie, she wants to pop in and, she wants to steal that and but they're they're almost like side characters the focus here is on barbara gordon's relationship uh, she's she of course is is the love interest to harvey dent which is very different than the you know traditional sort of sto uh, batman uh, mythology and uh there's uh the, the writer Sam Hamm does a, does a good job sort of building those relationships, the relationship between uh, Michael Keaton's Batman and the, the new Robin, uh, between Harvey Dent and Barbara Gordon. Even Jim Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, retires because he's inspired by the principles that he doesn't feel he's met, he's, he's met the principles as a commissioner that his young daughter, Barbara, has. And he his own daughter sort of inspires him to be a better man, and he feels the best way he can do that is to essentially retire. Of course, fortunately, he gets end up getting shot by Harvey Dent and and Batman, obviously, and Commissioner Gordon try to take Harvey Dent down. Uh, there's a tragedy to this where where Barbara Gordon herself needs to try to you know arrest her own her own fiance uh, Harvey Dent. So th this has a lot of deep character moments. Uh, I can imagine as a movie, if this was depending on the actor, this this would have been a really good movie. This was very well laid out. 
Uh, my favorite scene, uh, my favorite page is this page where there's a page where Harvey Dent is flipping a coin as his, as his uh, fiance Barbara Gordon has a gun to him and, and is making the difficult decision to arrest him. And he's, and he's talking and, and as the coin is flipping, you can see scenes playing out elsewhere in the comic on each side of the coin as it as it sort of falls to the ground on the on the left side of the page. I thought it was I thought it was very nice creative use of the coin toss and coin flip, and I thought that was very well done. So uh, artistically, I think this is uh, was great. I thought I thought the colors popped off the page. I thought it was very well put together. And for for people who like uh, Michael Keaton's Batman, this is going to be a really nice collection to buy and make a great gift for somebody who maybe doesn't read a lot of comics but is thinking about uh, checking it out. Yeah, I don't. I agree with you. Uh, I don't think that um, Jack Nicholson won for he he was nominated, but he didn't Sorry. win for for the Joker. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I just remember yeah, him being on stage and he and he was saying yeah. he, he wanted to give some attention to Michael Keaton. Uh, I think he was maybe given on something, but I just remember that. that yeah, was, he probably uh, was handing out. Yeah, he probably was handing out another another award, but yeah. but yeah, he got nominated for uh, yeah Golden Globe. I think Morgan Freeman won it that year for um, Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I so. can't believe that beat yeah. out Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you believe it? Uh, yeah, that had, what a mashup that would be, right? What if Joker was Driving Miss Daisy? A mashup. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Uh, Future State Gotham number 12, written by Dennis Culver. Art is by Giannis Miligianis. Letter by Troy Petrie. There are no colors, as usual, with this book. Um, yeah, I know you haven't. Have you? Did you give up on this one, Rocky? You're still reading it. I I, I kind of gave I, I, I kind of gave up on it. I, I, I did skim read it. And um I'm, I'm gonna. I just want to apologize to. I want to be very upfront with people. who are expecting a, a good, solid review on this from from me, and 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 to and to confess that I'm just not into the manga. I I don't like the cover art. I I'm I'm not into manga. I don't like the black and white. I'm not a fan of the artistic style. I can't get into this comic. We review a lot of comics every week, and straight up, this is just one of those things where some comics. Uh, this story I know is not as. Uh, um. I don't. I want to be careful with my words here. This story is is decent. I, if if this is probably one of the better future state stories. This idea of a new Joker, and you see him on the cover here. This idea of a new Joker. Uh, uh, Dennis Culver does a really good job, I think. From when I did skim read, I mean, he he's interwoven a lot of the future state Bat characters in probably a tale of them battling the magistrate and looking for Bruce Wayne. That would actually be interesting, but I stopped caring about future state a long time ago. And like I said to you at the risk of sounding like a broken record, uh, why does this comic still exist? <laughs> why is this an ongoing series? If any comic book that DC currently has should only be a mini series, it should be future state Gotham in my opinion, because <laughs> future state is over. Does I don't know of anybody at my local comic shop or that I've seen online that is saying, please let's continue future state Gotham. I, I don't, I don't know. I just, that's just me being, uh, I guess cynical, but because I think the story probably merits some attention, but I, uh, uh, I don't really have much to say about it, quite frankly. Although, and the backup once again is a backup we've already seen in Batman black and white or Batman urban legends, which is a good, uh, Nightwing story. But beyond that, I, I just don't really see the point of this comic. Yeah, the backup is absolutely fantastic. Uh, again, it's for Batman Black and White, so it's in Black and White. 
just like the main series, but a lot more grayscale than than the main series because the main series is just like black and light line work, very little um, shading to it. Uh, but the if you want to see Jamal Campbell at his best without color, uh, then yeah, check out the the Nightwing story, The Man Who Flies, letters by Darren Bennett. But again, uh, you know, it's from Batman Black and White number five that came out last year in April um, or May, maybe. I think May, actually. So again, you're reprinting this. It hasn't even been a year. Uh, But at the same time, maybe there were some people that weren't exposed to it. And this is fantastic art from Jamal Campbell. So I I don't know. I guess I, I give it a little bit of a pass. It's been almost a year. As far as the main story, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, I want to forget Future State happened as well. I wish I could forget how much money I spent on it. Um, but here's the thing. It's actually, like you indicated, a good story. And it's almost like the, the first five or six issues, when Joshua Williamson was on board with Dennis Culver, they were having to take their time to distance themselves from what we had seen in you know Batman Future State and Detective Comics Future State to get to the point where they're telling their own story. Is this a reality that's going to exist? No. So I also get what you're saying when why does this still exist? But is this interesting in terms of standing on its own? Yeah. We see the after effects of of Nightwing having used the brain uh, serum, which is the uh, equivalent of venom for the brain. Venom, you know, obviously enhances your physical abilities. Brain enhances your uh, mental abilities. Uh, so we see Nightwing, who eventually wakes up at the end of the issue and has all the answers, right? Like he's working with Talia al Ghul. I know where Damien is. I know who's been behind all the explosions and what's been going on in Gotham. I know how to stop the Magistrate. I know how to stop Hush. I know how to rescue Damien. Like he, know, he knows it all. So how that's all going to – and I know what happened to Bruce Wayne. So how that's all going to play out, I'm curious. Does it matter in the long run? No, it really doesn't because this is, again, a future that's not going to come to pass. But – at least I give credit to Dennis Culver that he's made it compelling and he's made it interesting. I'm less interested in this new version of the Joker who is kind of a juxtaposition against the old version of the Joker because he's much more physical and clearly not as smart or diabolical or Machiavellian or manipulative or whatever scheming, whatever word you want to use uh, to indicate how genius level criminal mind the, the current Joker is. We do get some action between – um, this version of the Joker, the Jace Fox version of Batman, and uh, and Jason Todd, he's Peacekeeper Red. So that's the majority of the middle issue where we get a lot of, of action. And then Harley Quinn betrays uh, Tobias Whale and uh, Mother Panic to Hush, who basically has been spending the whole series so far to this point, consolidating his power, taking over the Court of Owls, taking over the corrupt um, – arm of the Gotham city police department and, and basically being the, like the one to borrow a term from Marvel, the kingpin of the, the Gotham underworld. And, and now he thinks he's, he's got all the power. What he doesn't know is that Nightwing uh, is coming for him with, with his allies. So yeah, in terms of story, it's pretty fun. It's pretty interesting at the end of the story, just to throw a little cliffhanger and to annoy me, we do have the original Joker showing back up recruiting the, uh, physical new Joker. Hey, you want to learn what it's like to be a real Joker? So, you know, as much as I don't like the Joker, this is kind of an interesting aspect. Let me, let's take this physical guy, this physical Joker, who's not uh, anywhere near the same criminal mastermind as the old Joker. Let's mash him up. Let's see what we get. That's mildly interesting. I'm more interested in the Nightwing aspect and, and the hush aspect of the story in terms of the art. 
yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with Rocky. I'm not a big fan of the manga style. Um, I will say that uh, in terms of not having color, there's been a few other fill-in artists that we've had on this series other than Milo Giannis. And every time one of them has been on here, I've felt like we should have color. It would be better in color. Whenever Milo Giannis is on here, I, I actually don't want the color because I think his style of art is much better suited for the black and white. That right, being can I said, comment. Can I just make a comment yeah. on the color? Just, just because it's relevant to your point. I actually thought that this was Punchline, and it's Harley Quinn. And for some reason, with the hairstyle, I thought it looked like Punchline to me. But if there was color, it would have been obvious it was Harley Quinn. But I just, I just thought it was a little off to me. I just thought, you know, a lot of these characters, you know, I think having like maybe that's just me. I'm so used to color, but. I thought the portrayal of Harley Quinn was off. And still, once again, uh, Talia looks like she has no breasts, which is, you know, I, I think she's, I think they draw Talia as, Talia's supposed to be a beautiful woman, but she looks like a uh, a breastless uh, female who's, uh, it, it just it just threw me off again. But that's been a consistent criticism I've had of the art. But, you know, I'm old school. I like my women, especially when they're supposed to be sexy. I expect them to be drawn sexy, but. Maybe yeah, again, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not particularly, you know, saying let's go one way or the other. All I'm saying is, yeah, Milagianis's art looks better in black and white. His line work uh, is more suited to that, as opposed to some of the other people who have, uh, who have filled in, where I think that their their line work lends itself to color more. That being said, would I like it to be in color? Yes. But if Milagianis is going to draw, draw it, then I don't want it in color because we've seen what color does to his art and it doesn't look good. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 have, I have mixed feelings about this, um, but I, I've been hooked in for the last couple of issues in terms of the story. It has gotten interesting. So, But, I mean, could you imagine? You, you would be all over this if uh, Jamal Campbell was drawn in black and white like – he draws the uh, man who flies because that art is just gorgeous to look at. And almost story almost doesn't matter at that point. Yeah. I, I admit, you know, it's funny, you know, it's funny when it comes to the manga style art, there, there is overlap because there, there are some artists that have a manga influence that I really love their art, but I, I, I don't, I lack the language to adequately describe where that fine line, you know, shift in art suddenly occurs suddenly happens where I look at it and I'm not, I don't like that. <laughs> and yet it might have a manga influence and I don't mind it, but yet this happens to have a particular look to it that I just, it just kind of turns me off and I, I can't really see. Well, it's the manga. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the manga influence without color, which makes it even brings it even more to the, to the forefront. So yeah. anyway, let's move on. Uh, Batman Catwoman number 11. This is the penultimate next to last issue. Tom King is the writer. Clay Mann handles art and color. Tamiya More, uh, or sorry, Clay Mann handles art and cover. Tamiya More handles the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that this is starting to come together for you. What do you think? <laughs> well, okay. Uh, for those uh, for those people who have been uh, who listen to our uh, reviews, they know that. Uh, uh, I I generally I I really like I. I like to love uh, 90% of Tom King's writings, uh, but I've not, and I loved his Batman annual number two, uh, which ironically enough is actually 
supposedly in continuity with this particular Batman Catwoman series, but I'm not a fan of Tom King's Batman run, generally speaking. And and this is the one Tom King, one of his few uh, compilations that I just, his storytelling efforts that has, has not resonated with me. I don't understand his interpretation. I haven't really understood. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of his iteration or his interpretation of Selina Kyle or his Batman. I think his Catwoman overshadows Batman far too much. I think Batman comes across as foolish and uh, somewhat like an idiot and a second-rate, uh, almost uh, codependent uh, character to Catwoman's and Selina Kyle's strange addictions and fascinations with such things as having drinks with the Joker every Christmas and, you know just sort of scoffing it off and letting Selena Kyle get away with all kinds of things. And I don't, I don't exactly, uh, this has not been a series that, uh, I've been particularly favorable to. I've, uh, I've said, I've said, I've been very diplomatic, uh, and I've, I've just sort of opted out and said, I just don't get what the hell's going on. I, and I haven't, I, I still say that there is not a great, I still say that this is the one time where, even though Tom King has again a fantastic collaboration, he he's gifted with another great artist. With um, is it uh, help me out again? Who's the artist? Uh, Clayman. Clayman. Uh, yep. Clayman, great artist, but I, I still find it a little choppy going from timeline to timeline. I don't find that it's paced very well. I think it's very choppy, and I, I think his current uh, Batman story, Killing Time, suffers from the. Uh, it's a little bit better, but I, I fear that it might be suffering from the same sort of affliction. But in any event, this 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 particular story here, um, I, I finally have some answers about wh who the hell, you know, the the phantasm, Andrea Beaumont. I had I, I had no idea that this that the kid in the early years she was apparently Andrea Beaumont. That was Andrea Beaumont thought that this kid that she had rescued was was the Joker's son, that Joker got some random girl pregnant, and then and then the Joker wanted to kill this kid, but Andrea Beaumont took this kid, raised this kid as her own, and ultimately uh, the Joker misled her to believe that this child was actually his when it wasn't, and, and Andrea Beaumont, the phantasm, realized that the Joker played her for a fool for years, and that this son that, the, that Andrea Beaumont raised as her own was actually the stolen, kidnapped son of another couple that went for years uh, being deprived of their son. And when they finally discover discover what uh, the truth of it, the Joker shows up and kills and and of course killed those parents in an earlier issue, which completely confused me. I didn't know what was going on at the time at that issue, and now it it kind of makes sense why why that was such a big deal. Um, having said that. This is still a very, very, very depressing issue. I'm going to say things which I still sort of baffle me a little bit, but it's I guess it's typical Tom King. Now, when I say typical Tom King, a lot of the typical Tom King stuff, I don't mind. And when he does it well and he nails it, I really enjoy his stories. But to, to add, a, I'll try to say this humorously, he does, this is a ridiculously depressing issue in my mind because Andre Beaumont's in a, in a fit of depression over having deprived biological parents of, to their son because of her mistake of being fooled and made a fool of by the Joker. She kills herself in front of Catwoman at the end 
And that sets forth the motivation. We now know why Catwoman wanted to get revenge on the Joker. It's uh, why Catwoman Selina killed the Joker. It was because of what the Joker did to Andrea Beaumont, what she did, what, what he did to the Phantasm by sort of psychologically manipulating Andrea Beaumont to such a state that she commits suicide. And that's why Selena Kyle waited until after her husband, Bruce Wayne, had died to kill the Joker because obviously during his lifetime, Bruce Wayne would never allow Selena Kyle to kill the Joker. And in some twisted kind of justification, Selena Kyle um, didn't want to, you know, upset her husband while her husband is still alive. So uh, she decided to wait until Batman was dead before she dishonored his legacy and his name and passed on her uh, passed on her dysfunction to her daughter Helena, who sadly, completely in my view, does a character flip this issue. Helena spent all that time, the first 10 issues, going after her mother, along with Commissioner Dick Grayson, to bring Selena to justice for killing the Joker, which was the right thing to do. Uh, but Helena then flip-flops in this issue and takes down Dick Gray Commissioner Dick Grayson uh, very arrogantly. You know, two two powerful women, uh, and now she's aiding and abetting her mother in the murder of the Joker, which, look... I hate the Joker like anyone else does, but one of the legacies of the Batman uh, was he never killed. I can't think of a greater disdain shown for Batman and for her husband than what Selina Kyle did in killing the Joker. I can't think of a greater disdain shown by Batman's daughter than her aiding and abetting uh, her mother in the killing of the Joker. Uh, her uh, Helena Kyle's takedown of Dick Grayson this issue by basically using a, you know, uh, taking him down with a, a, t a taser, I thought was reprehensible, uh, calling him out uh, very arrogantly. Helena uh, having the audacity to suggest that she was more like her father than her mother, which was ridiculous, as if her father would aid and abet the mother like that. Although I suppose Bruce Wayne did have that hypocrisy in him. He always let Selena Kyle get away with everything because he loved her, but at least he had a sexual motivation. Uh, apparently the Huntress, like her dad, uh, lets her mother gets away with anything as well, including murder, as Dick Grayson, Commissioner Dick Grayson aptly points out in this issue uh, when she takes him down in the Batcave. Um, all of this is very interesting. Uh, these are character moments. These are characters. I think these characters are kind of the only character that I think is in character in my mind is Commissioner Dick Grayson. He has stuck to his principles from issue one throughout. I see, I see Selena Kyle as being out of character, but I will give Tom King this. In, in fairness to him, he's written his Selena Kyle fairly, more or less maybe consistently throughout his run. So even though I disagree vehemently with his interpretation of Selena Kyle, I, I should at least in fairness to his writing say, well, okay, that's his iteration, his interpretation. And he has remained more or less consistent with writing Selena Kyle as a little bit I think she's a little bit wonky in her, in, she's twisted in her thinking. Uh, and But there is a story here to be told, and it is interesting. Andrea Beaumont did have motivation, uh, you know, understanding the tragedy of Andrea Beaumont, the phantasm, how she was manipulated by the Joker. Uh, with uh, Selena Kyle and Batman ultimately taking the Joker down, Selena taking the secret to her grave uh, about what she actually wanted to do and her plan to ultimately kill the Joker and then doing so, uh, I, I think is really, really a stain on her relationship with Bruce Wayne. But so I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it, or do you think I've misread the narrative so far? 
Uh, I'm curious, uh, how did you feel about this issue? Do you feel different or did, did I miss the mark? Well, I don't think you missed the mark. I mean, that's how you interpret it. I could not disagree more. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, again, so this is, first of all, I should say this is black label. So whether or not it ends up in continuity or not, Tom has even said himself, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, my take, I, I've never been a, a huge fan of the Bruce Selena relationship because to me, who Catwoman is at, at her core is sort of antithetical to who Bruce Wayne is at his core. And it's like this physical attraction and some longing, some, something that's missing in both their lives. They're both very much loners. They've both, you know, grown up under difficult circumstances. And, and that's what brings them together in terms of being kindred spirits. But in terms of values, it never made sense to me. And so the way I interpret this, as Selena's desire to be with Bruce and to set aside her own proclivities that that Bruce would not approve of, and we see it, it you know again, this is three different timelines here. We see those proclivities cause friction at various times in in the the, the past two timelines as opposed to the the latest timeline or the timeline that's furthest forward in time after she's killed the Joker. But in the, the other two, her proclivities to do things that Bruce wouldn't approve of cause friction between her and Bruce. So the first one, they're not even together yet. And the second one, they are together. And then the third one, obviously Bruce is dead. So the way I interpret it is that Selena cared about Bruce so much. She loved him so much that yes, those pro proclivities, those inclinations of her decision-making that Bruce would not agree with caused friction at times, but she did her damnedest to set those aside and to do the things that she knew or to not, let me put it this way, she, to not do the things that Bruce wouldn't approve of. That's how much she loved him. That's why she waited until Bruce was dead to kill the Joker. So you're saying it's a stain on their relationship. I see it as it, it's actually showing how much she loved Bruce that all this time, all this time she knows the trauma that the Joker caused to uh, Andrea Beaumont uh, with, with kidnapping the kid and giving it to Andrea. So not only trauma to Andrea, but trauma to the boy's family, trauma to the boy himself, trauma to the boy's family for him being uh, kidnapped and missing everything that they missed out on. Here is a little boy who, much like Bruce, who, much like Selena herself, underwent trauma of not being with his family. Not that Andrea Beaumont didn't do the best she could at, at being a mother and raising him, but it's not the same, right? And here, here's a boy who whose parents were still around, who didn't need to go through that trauma, only went through that trauma because of the Joker. So Selena has been carrying this around for decades, for decades. That's how much she loved Batman, and that's how much she loved Bruce, that she carries it around for decades and doesn't do anything until he's in the ground. And then hey, now the gloves are off. Now it's time for the Joker to pay the price. So that's the way that I interpret it. I'm not saying that my way is any better than anybody else's, but that's just the way that I, I read it. And again, it goes back to my thinking that, you know, these real, I mean, Bruce and, and Selena are really a case of opposites attract, right? I mean, they are so different when it comes to the, their core values are a lot of times align, but the way they would choose to manifest those core values in choices of how they live their lives are often at complete opposite ends. Um, as far as 
the new Batman, which I, I find, found it kind of interesting that Dick Grayson tells Bruce and Selena's daughter, uh, Helena, you're Batman, not Batwoman, but you're Batman. Like she is the Batman now, even though yeah. she's a female, obviously. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. But in terms of, of the choice that she makes to back up her mom, I can't really say because we've only ever got her in this story. So I don't know that I really – I don't feel like I know her as well as uh, – know her well enough as a character to say whether it be in character or out of character. I mean I can only imagine if it was my mom, that would be a tough choice to try to turn turn her in. So yeah, I do agree with you that, that Dick Grayson is, is the one that's most closely portrayed – to regular DC continuity, but you can portray Tom King in my mind can portray these characters in whatever way he wants. Cause this is black label. It's out of continuity. So if he wants, you know, Bruce or Selena or Dick or whoever to act wildly different than they do in the regular, I mean, that's black label. I mean, that's, that's the point of it. So I'm enjoying this. I thought this was a fantastic issue because again, it did really shine a light on the fact that, yeah, I mean, Tom King has talked about how much this is a love story. I never really got that other than it's just, oh, it's, you know, typical Batman Catwoman. Let me ask you a question. Uh, my question is, and, and maybe I'll answer it in the, in, the, in the way I ask you the question, but I, I've always been baffled throughout this series and multiple issues. We have, we've had Selena having drinks with the Joker in flashbacks around a Christmas tree or, or on rooftops talking to the Joker. And, I'm thinking about it now and that that seems very odd to me that she would she seemed to go out of her way to maintain a relationship with the Joker throughout her relationship with Batman no, and then no. even after even after Bat Bruce Wayne dies she's she you know she she goes to him for drinks and then kills him so I'm like why did can you explain that why did she do that I'm I'm almost she only ever she, she only ever had the that's the first timeline that she had drinks that's before she ever got in any sort of relationship with Batman that's the Selena that's I don't care I don't have any in my and again this is my interpretation I don't care if I have drinks with the Joker he's chaos he's a madman he's whatever I'll hang out with him. He's dangerous because I don't have any value myself. That's that's the way I look at it. That's the damaged Selena. That's the Selena that doesn't think any anything of herself. She can do whatever the hell she wants because she has no value. There's nothing good in her life. She's just a criminal, whatever. And and the Joker's just another distraction, you know, from dealing with her own stuff. Yeah. That's the I first can, timeline. I can buy that. I, I can I, I can I could buy that interpretation and that th- your interpretation makes the most sense for the story to work. And so it's likely the intention of what Tom King did. So I, I can, I, I'll, 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 I guess I'll accept that except for the fact that it never, it goes back to my frustration that if, if I, if I had a better sense of what the timeline was at the time, because it was always unclear to me exactly what part of Selena's life like when was that christmas i it wasn't clear to me that it was because the one time i thought the one issue the joker had just left and bruce wayne shows up so i assume that they were she was still in a relationship with bruce wayne at that issue so that that's what confused me on that one issue but you could be right i mean i can i can buy into that in, in a sense it just there's just uh, just yeah you got, i mean the pace of the, I, the way things know, I, came together didn't quite gel for me yeah, I mean, as much as I'm a huge fan of Clay Mann, I think, and again, this would have helped the issue to come out 
you know, the series to come out on time instead of having to go bi-monthly is if each of the three timelines had been drawn by different artists, I think that would have been a better way to go. Uh, and I, I say, you know, that first timeline when Bruce and Selena didn't have a relationship. Well, I mean, there was chemistry between the two of them from the moment they met. So there was already the beginnings of something. And Bruce very well have, I would have to go back and read it. There may have been moments where Bruce felt betrayed. Why are you hanging out with my arch nemesis? You know, you're, you're not the same as the rest of my rogues gallery. The middle timeline is when they're, they've definitely already gotten together. And obviously the final timeline when he, when he's dead. So, but anyway, that's the way I interpret it. No, it's, it's I, interesting. Have, it's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm we have, enjoying dissecting this, the, the series like this because your interpretation maybe helps me get an appreciation of maybe what Tom King was going at. Cause I was really, you know, even though I, I, I didn't quite see that, hearing you explain your side of things, I can maybe see, okay, maybe that's what he, what he was trying to do, even if it didn't resonate with me. So that that's an interesting take. Yeah. And as much as I'm a fan of Tom, I'm not going to give him a pass on the fact that, yeah, this, this wasn't presented in the easiest way to understand, you know, I would consider myself an expert on comic books. And even I was lost for like the first four or five issues. And granted, I didn't go back and reread them, you know, multiple times, which probably would have helped me to have a greater understanding. But I think right around issue six or seven, it clicked for me. But yeah, not – and again, I, part of it is the the delay, the delay because Clayman, his art is gorgeous, but that you know that uh, beautiful line work takes time. You got to pay, pay a price for that. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, of course, it's more Batman because it's DC. I am Batman, Empire State of Mind, part three from writer John Ridley. Christian Ducey is the artist, Rex Locus on Colors. Troy Petrie does letters. We saw at the end of uh, last issue, Batman had confronted this guy with, I don't know, it's an iron. It's an iron with spikes on it and tied to a chain. Um, I don't know that we ever get a name for him. Yeah, I, I, I um, think we, uh, I can't remember. I was going to ask you, I couldn't remember the name. I, I think that it was in the title of last of the last issue, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, it the press might have given him a name. I didn't remember what it was, but... Uh, Jace Fox gets his ass whooped and runs away and it completely rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, really? Like where you've been doing all this training and you're ready to be Batman and you like, you clearly are not ready. But then John Ridley immediately acknowledges that. So that helped kind of lessen the blow of, of seeing Batman. I mean, and again, we've we've talked about this. What the heck has Jace Fox done to earn the name Batman? Like, call him Batwing. I'm completely fine with him. But, you know, and again, it goes back to 5G and, you know, changes in DC editorial and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, I just want to have it be a good story. But, yeah, I was it really rubbed me the wrong way. But then, as I said, <laughs> Ridley leans into it. Jace Fox himself, he calls his dad. I ran away. I'm, I shouldn't be doing this. His dad's trying to talk him down. So there's a lot of good stuff um, in the story, including the the very unlikable police commissioner uh, being kidnapped by this villain and then killed, um, just brutally tortured and eviscerated, and then all it all comes to light what a horrible racist and homophobe and just general scumbag this commissioner was, which reflects badly on the mayor. And so a lot of the political aspects, I, I will continue, and it's funny. Um, I have from the beginning, and I acknowledge I haven't seen the show, uh, uh, even a full episode. I've seen bits and pieces of it here and there, that, that, that Fox show Empire. Um, 
New York is known as the Empire State. This arc we're reading now is Empire State of Mind. That's what this story reminds me of because it's so soap operatic, you know, with the tensions between the family, the Fox family, between uh, Jace Fox and his siblings, between Jace Fox and his mother, between Jace Fox and his father, between the father and the mother. Like there's there's so much of that going on. Obviously, they're all African-American, which in that show, uh, Empire and Fox, they're African-American. I think they're um, uh, they're involved in the music industry or what, what have you, as opposed to tech like they are here. Um, but I'm really enjoying that aspect of the story. To me, that that's interesting. Uh, and we, we almost get more more of that than we do action in this issue, more of the, the political and the, the relationship stuff. And I'm totally fine with that. Uh, I'm also totally fine with the fact that Batman is actually working with the New York police department. And it's actually, uh, it, it's not that antagonistic relationship that we get yeah. so many times. It's such a, a cliche. Uh, that being said, there are uh, members of the New York or police department that were loyal to the, racist, homophobic, generally dislikable scumbag uh, commissioner who are like, uh, hey, if, if Batman and, and the mayor and whoever else are too uh, scared to do what needs to be done and, and go kill this person who murdered uh, Commissioner Beckett, we're going to do it ourselves. So uh, again, very on point, very relevant with this whole idea in the world right now with you know white supremacists and, and plenty of uh, – police departments across America and that sort of thing. So yeah, John Ridley is, um, he's not being shy about how, how political this book is and how he's, he's using it as a kind of a statement on, you know, police departments and racism and societal issues that we have going on right now in the world. So, uh, I'm enjoying this. I thought the art by, um, Christian, Christian. Ducey was, yeah, fantastic. Uh, he does a, an incredible job of, bringing the tension, especially in the fight scenes uh, that Ridley is trying to bring, because again, Ridley, he hasn't written a ton of comics. He's written some, um, but Christian Doucet is a, is a veteran comic artist and he does a fantastic job, especially of showing us Batman getting his ass whooped. Uh, you know, part of the reason it's so brutal is the art that Doucet gives us, which, you know, instructed by Ridley to, Hey, in this panel, he's getting his ass whooped and, uh, or this page or what have you. And so, yeah, I, I can't, I can't credit Ducey enough. And the other part of what I'll give Ducey a lot of credit for in terms of storytelling is, like I said, this is a very political book. This is a book about relationships and the, the, the tension and the drama that's brought about by, you know, different people with their own motivations and whatnot. That can get boring. You know, when you talk about a talking head book or a book that doesn't have a ton of action, um, but it never gets boring. Um, I'm never bored reading this book. So I give Duce a, a lot of credit and also the colors by Rex Locus are, uh, are very good as well in terms of this feels like New York city, uh, just in terms of the color palette that he chose. So, yeah, I mean, again, ever since they've moved, I am Batman to New York city. Uh, this has been a really, really good book. Uh, I'm, I'm probably enjoying this more than I am the regular Batman book right now. So what do you think, Rock? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, this is actually uh, better than the normal Batman book right now. Uh, I enjoyed this. I, I like the real world elements. I think John Ridley does a really good job of balancing it in such a way that, um, well, quite frankly, I, I, I enjoy the politics in it. And and he, he it's very subtle anyway. You know, Commissioner Beckett, who is sort of a racist commissioner, he's actually somebody that uh, he, he could be a reflection of numerous 
political figures we have in real life. Uh, he claims criminals do not deserve due process, and he blames cr crime in New York City on marginalized community communities. Uh, it's a very careful choice of words by John Ridley. Uh, he doesn't use the word minority, it's marginalized communities. Um, Detective Chubbs and Whitaker are working with Batman to uh, take to get the guns off the street, and they seem to be doing a, a fairly competent job of it. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned is the character work here. I, I, I note that in past reviews of I Am Batman, uh, going all the way back to Future State, one of your criticisms that, that you felt, that I respectfully, I, I didn't share your view on it, but you, you had you you weren't feeling the character work. You 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 weren't really feeling the character work of the of the Fox family, and so it's it's good to it's it's nice to see that 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 uh, I mean it's that you're noticing more of the character work now too because it's it's actually gotten better, and uh, you know we're we're starting to see that that it is a complex family dynamic, and I actually find the Fox family to be more likable than they were in Future State because initially Lucius Fox was kind of a dick. Now he's starting to, you know, now his wife is, his wife was kind of a bitch. She was against uh, hooded, she was against cry, uh, vigilantism. And now his wife is actually uh, trying to fight, uh, is, is trying to give uh, jobs to women getting out of jail and reduce the rate of recidivism uh, in the crime rates. And, and Lucius Fox is more of a mentor to his son. Uh, Jace Fox has a, a, seems to have a healthy relationship with his uh, sibling, uh, Tammy. Uh, or pardon me, Tiffany in this issue, and Tammy is still recovering and, and going under some uh, physical therapy for the accident that she was in. So yeah, it's not just more likable since Future State, but they're more likable than they were at the beginning of this series. Yeah, no, yeah, good point. Yes, and even and even I was actually surprised to see uh, uh, Had Hadia Hadia Hadia, which and Vol uh, making an appearance again. Hadia being. His love interest that I frankly thought that Hedia was going to be discarded as a character, uh, but it's nice to see that she's back. This Hedia is a love interest for uh, Jace Fox, and of course she loves him and he loves her. But of course there's always going to be that will they or won't they type thing, uh, which is interesting because I for some reason I thought Detective uh, Chubbs was going to be the uh, that the black detective was going to be the the love interest for Jace Fox, but maybe there's going to be like an interesting little triangle, some tension building up there long term. Uh, I love all the players that are coming into play here. I love the flaws of these characters. All these characters have flaws. Even the people we, even Jace Fox, he's a flawed. He's not the greatest fighter. I mean, he he's humbled in this issue, and that's good to see. We like to see our heroes make mistakes and be humbled. Uh, the good guys can be can be screwed up, can be racist, can be. Uh, can get better. Uh, there's there's problems to be overcome. New York City is different than Gotham. This doesn't feel like Gotham City, and I like that. The relationship between Batman and the police, it's all played very, very well. John Ridley really has done a good job creating his own world here for this new Batman. This is Jace Fox. This is not Bruce Wayne. He's got a very different approach uh, to uh, the way he's bringing it, and even his even his angst about dealing with the the fact that they got billions of dollars. There's a good conversation in here between that he had with his sister Tiffany, who says to him, "Look, we got billions of dollars, but don't you know, don't pretend like you know you're so upset about it as if it's it's not like it's dirty money. We, whatever we do with it, we can we can clean it up. I mean, let's we have these resources, let's use them. Mom's using them. Their mom's using them to." Uh, to help uh, p uh, women who are getting out of prison. He's using it as Batman. I mean, they can use it to help the community of New York, and that's what they're doing. And there's there's a lot of moving parts here. 
and it works. And so kudos. I'm, and I, I'm enjoying this. A lot of substance in this issue. I love it. It was, it wasn't, it didn't feel, it felt well paced, well executed, good fight scenes, good character motivations, good character work. Uh, and the art was excellent uh, with uh, the, you know, shout out to the colorist as well. Rex Locus on the colors. Uh, there's a scene here I, I really like just a, just typical a New York City street with at a cafeteria. Uh, uh, Hadia is having a, a lunch with Vol and they're talking at a cafe and it's just beautifully drawn. They're having a conversation and that it's just you really get a sense of, of New York City. And I've only been there once. And so <laughs> what do I know? But anyways, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy this issue. Yeah, I wonder about taking him in New York City. John Ridley, obviously very familiar. He may live in New York City. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But the only reason I bring it up is because I think Miami would have been another interesting place to take Chase Fox. And the reason I think Miami is because when I hear Whitaker and Chubbs, I can't think help but think of Crockett and Tubbs from Miami Vice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. Yeah, Whitaker and Chubbs, uh, or Whitaker and Chubb, and yeah, Chase Fox down in Miami. Uh, maybe that's. You know, year three, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, moving on. We have Green Lantern number 12. This brings the Jeffrey Thorne run to an end. He's the writer. We have Tom Rainey and Marco Santucci on art. Mike Atea on colors. Rob Lee on letters. I think you enjoyed this more than I did, Rocky. You go first. Well, I I, I do think uh, overall this uh, – Look, Jeffrey Thorne, has, uh, he's dealt with a lot of moving parts in this series. And in 12 issues, he's actually accomplished quite a bit in 12 issues. And uh, what he's done in 12 issues is, he's, he, I think he's, he's made Jon Stewart's history as a Green Lantern uh, as interesting or as, dare I say, as complex as the other Green Lanterns. Because now this issue ends with Jon Stewart becoming the Emerald Knight. And just to remind people, Hal Jordan was Parallax, and he was also the Spectre. Guy Gardner used to be, he was a, a warrior. He was the warrior for a while. He was a Red Lantern. Kyle Rayner was the Torchbearer, and he was a White Lantern. Uh, uh, Jessica Cruz has been an Omega Lantern in, in the Justice League Odyssey run. Uh, and she's also now a member of the Sinestro Corps. So all of the, these, these, these lan all of these Green Lanterns that we all know and love, have been through the ringer and they've all been elevated in their own in their own way. And Jeffrey Thorne made no bones about it when he took on this series that he John Stewart was going to be the focus. But to his credit, he did manage in the end here to um to to bring in all the lanterns. Uh you know, Hal Jordan, the entire core, and he he, it was somewhat convoluted. I thought it was a little bit difficult to follow. I thought the art by uh, Tom Rainey and Marco Santucci was a little bit uh, outside what I was accustomed to for Green Lantern. Not that it didn't work, but it was took some getting used to. This final issue is called Nova Lux, which I believe is Latin. It means new light. And that, that word and that phrase becomes very uh, obvious as to why that phrase was used as a title to this last issue because essentially... John Stewart accesses the God Storm and he ends up talking to the source itself, the source of all things, uh, the source being that which is normally contained behind the source wall that separates all the, the multiverses. And the source is sentient and it, it actually speaks. This, the source takes the form of a what looks to be like a, a, a an older gentleman in a suit <laughs> talking to John about his 
about how John has done something that no other John Stewart in, in the multiverse has ever done before. He's actually accessed an, a, a God storm and he's in control of it. And, and of course he, John Stewart has also chosen one of his iterations that he wants to, he knows what he wants to be. And John Stewart though, has to come overcome his own inadequacies, his own insecurities. John Stewart is convinced that power corrupts and the source, this embodiment of the source tells him, no, John, power doesn't corrupt, power reveals. So if you are inherently a weak person who can't handle power, giving you power will reveal your inadequacies and it will corrupt you. But John Stewart, you are a good man. And it reveals if you are of good character, then you can have all, just because you've got great power doesn't mean that you will shine away from responsibility. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to sound it. I don't want to make it sound like a Spider-Man comic. This is definitely not a Spider-Man comic, but um, it's you know it's interesting that John Stewart goes. We know that Oa's under attack by the. I don't even. I I forget the names of the sort of the corrupted guardian. Uh, we know that the uh, Oa, the central power battery, was destroyed. All the lanterns have lost all their powers. It looks like they're they're losing. Well, John Stewart shows up, utilizing the God Storm. He saves the day. He heals. It's sort of a Duke Ek Machina ending. So it's that there's some. I give it that criticism. You know, John Stewart shows up and just utilizes the God Storm, and suddenly he heals every everybody's healed, and everybody gets better. And suddenly, Hal Jordan can access and create his own original ring again, and. Suddenly, all the, the the Green Lanterns can they utilize they they get their old rings back and they some of them become some of them become Star Sapphires inexplicably some become Blue Lanterns inexplicably we don't know the Central Power Battery becomes this almost like it almost becomes like it's a it, it's a power battery for not just willpower the green light but also for the star sapphires and the blue light as well. And it has some yellow in it as well. So I'm not sure what the mysteries of this new central power battery is, are, but it's not just for Green Lanterns anymore. I think Jeffrey Thorne is also incorporating a little bit of Star Wars. Everyone talks, we've heard before about Jeff Johns in the past, used to refer to in different interviews as in the Green Lantern universe, he'd refer to it as sort of like the, the Star Wars of the DC universe. And what's interesting here is that we get the equivalent of force ghosts. Now, Green Lanterns who have died in the past almost can, can come back now as force ghosts to give advice to present Lanterns. At least that's the implication. It's really, it's really odd, but it's interesting. And so it's, it's almost if we really do sort of have like a Jedi Knight kind of sensibility or mythology here that you know where are you going to draw this from so what happens now if you know if you have a green lantern and a, a ring and, and then you die or do you do you really die or do you become part of the source or what exactly happens there there's a lot of open questions here and a lot of these like even quark or I, how do you say stars you know there's a, a number of uh i'm not sure what it's a mystery why some former Green Lanterns became Star Sapphires and some became Blue Lanterns. There are some open questions here. Simon Biaz did not get a ring for some reason and he's not sure why. Uh, the Teen Lantern is still, <laughs> she's still in a coma. She's still off the playing field and she's, whether she gets her gauntlet back, I'm sure she will, but that's an open question too, I think. 
Um, but again, all the, I think the most interesting element, I, I all these sort of like force ghosts or lantern ghosts that sort of show up and that John John Stewart can see. I'm not really sure how that how that's going to work. Uh, what's how this ties into future state is interesting because at the end of this, John Stewart decides that he's he's now that he's healed the central power battery. The the Green Lanterns have been healed. Uh, three six hundred of the Green Lanterns have gotten their rings back, and now there's only six hundred Green Lanterns. But he's the the three other the three hundred other Green Lanterns that we thought were dead that were killed in the dark sector. Apparently they're not dead, but John Stewart is, is going to let the other lanterns think that they are dead. And he transports himself back to the dark sector and he becomes the Emerald Knight. And it ends with him, uh, with Kilowog in the dark sector, fighting alongside the other green, uh, you know, former green lanterns uh, in their battle against the slavers in the dark sector. And that's sort of how it ends with the promise that, you know, John Stewart and the Emerald Knights is, is likely going to be, you know, possibly a future series. And so everything does tie up. Uh, what I like about this issue, similar to, to, to like Batman Catwoman with Tom King issue 11, is that I actually feel that this, it sort of brought things together in a way that I could understand better than some of the previous issues that I felt a little bit lost. So the pacing was a little bit better here. Uh, I still got some criticisms that I still think that most readers are going to be lost with this. Uh, but uh, I like the ending with Jon Stewart as an Emerald Knight. Uh, it's It seems a little bit like, still seems a little bit odd. He's not a Green Lantern anymore. Now he's got a sword and he kind of reminds me a little bit of Guy Gardner as the warrior, but except now he's just an Emerald Knight. So, but it's maybe Conan the Barbarian meets Green Lantern now. I, I don't know, but it's interesting. Obviously, it'll depend on where Jeffrey Throne goes with this or future writers. But um, I thought it was less confusing than than past issues. But uh, do you share my thoughts, or what, how did you how did you take this? Is it less confusing? Yes. Is it John Stewart fan fiction? Yes. So the series ends, as you said, the way it began. Uh, so my com- you know, my my issue with it, my complaint is that. Yeah, it's it's very much ex deus machina with John Stewart showing up with the power of the God Storm, fixing everything. Oh, he just uses his powers and he heals Oa. He uses his powers and he creates a new, you know, sphere that's the central power battery for all the different uh, lantern cores. You know, as red, orange, yellow, green, blue, all of them—they're all there together in one. That, I mean, in a way, that's an interesting concept because it. It leads to the, the potential for other stories, but at the end of the day, if he's so powerful, why does he have to go and rescue, like physically go with a sword and rescue these lanterns from the green sector? He's so powerful according to the source, he should be able to just wave his hand, which is basically what he did to restore all the damage that Koyos and all his minions did. So, yeah, yeah he... I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't particularly care for it. The problem I have with the art is a problem I've had throughout. Marco Santucci and Tom Rainey's art is. It's a little bit similar in kind of line work and rendering, but they they have wildly different styles when it comes to storytelling. Uh, Santucci's storytelling is a little more subtle, 
and a little more subdued. And Rainey's is a little more in your face, a little little more choppy on the transitions. So it never it never has throughout this entire run. They've shared the art duties, and it never has worked for me in my mind. Uh, I think Simon Boz, he doesn't get a ring at first, but then does. If you look at, as you call him, the Force Ghost show up, he is in the, in a Green Lantern uniform. So why some get them? And, and, and Hal even himself, yeah, we saw, and it was one of the most amazing moments in the Robert Venditti run when Hal was able to create his own ring and, you know, talked about it and whatever. And he's mentioning here, yeah, I can't even do that anymore. Uh, and then he gets a ring back and he's like, this isn't the one I created. This feels like my original ring. And then Flash goes in and gets everybody's rings and brings them all out. And they all charge them up. And then eventually Simon Boz get, gets his as well. It's never really explained why. Why does some, like you said, why do some people become, like Chip becomes a Blue Lantern. Somebody else, but I can't remember who it was, becomes a Star Sapphire. Again, it's it's not it's not explained. Um, you know, maybe he just ran out of room. I, I don't know. But this... This story never really worked for me in the beginning. It felt very much like John Stewart fan fiction. We kind of got away with away from that in the middle, but then once the I can't remember what his name is now, but the the new god that was um, Lonar was his name. When once right. he showed up and started talking to John Stewart about being the chosen one and blah blah, blah it, it reverted back to feeling like John Stewart fan fiction and. And that's how it ends. So this is the final issue of the run. Will we get some John Stewart Emerald Knight stuff? I imagine so at some point. Although, kind of curious how that's going to happen since apparently John Stewart dies in Justice League seventy five, um, which he's got the power of the God Storm. Which, I, I mean, I take the power of the God Storm to almost be like the power of the Source. Like, is this what uh, Darkseid has been the, the, the level of power and ability that Darkseid has been searching for, for hundreds of years. Um, I don't know, but why John Stewart? And again, maybe it just goes back to the fact that, you know, when I started reading comics, Hal Jordan was green lantern. He's always been my green lantern. And I've said this a hundred times, but even this version of John Stewart, the Marine Corps version, isn't even my favorite version. Like I, I like the pre-crisis version of John Stewart where he's a little more, downtrodden he was an architect he hadn't been in the military he was a little more of the everyman as opposed to this you know marine gun-ho version of john stewart he's never really spoken to me i I don't have really have a touch point for him so yeah i mean being that green lantern is one of my favorite properties in in dc this whole series has been a miss for me um and again not to say that this hasn't been a a well put together series um I, i think Jeffrey Thorne's love of John Stewart clearly comes across here, but that's okay because uh, we talked about Jeff Johns being a fan of a huge fan of DC and how much that does service to the stories he tells. So I don't begrudge Jeffrey Thorne, his love of John Stewart. And if I, if I had love for John Stewart, if John Stewart was my green lantern, if, if my first exposure to green lantern was the justice league unlimited cartoon, for example, where John Stewart is the green lantern, then this might speak to me more, but having Hal Jordan on the back burner here and, and just this wildly powerful John Stewart, just it, it kind of shrugged my shoulders. You know, it's only, it's only okay. There are interesting ideas, as I said, that Thorne has introduced here and hopefully somebody else will come along and pick up those pieces while Jeffrey Thorne goes and writes John Stewart as Emerald God. I mean, Emerald Knight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on. 
Batman Urban Legends number 14. We've got uh, four stories here. Batman and Zatanna in Bound to Our Will, part four of six, from writer Vita Ayala. Nicola Semeggia on art. Nick Filardi on color. Steve Wands on letters. Batman and the Question in Right Answer, Wrong Question. It's a standalone, one-part story. Ryan Caddy is the artist. Giuseppe Camancoli on pencils. Cam Smith on inks. Sebastian Cheng on colors. William Schubert does the letters. Birds of Prey in Memory Lane, part one of three. And this is a different Birds of Prey, different from many you've seen before, by writer Che Grayson. Serge Acuna is the artist. Yvonne Placencia on colors. Josh Reed on letters. Ace the Bat Hound in Hounded, part four of six, from writer Mark Russell. Carl Mostert is the artist. Trish Mulvihill on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Those are the four stories. I'm going to go through them super quickly. The Batman Zatanna story. Um, this feels like it's going on a little bit too long. We we talked in the beginning about how, like, at the end of issue three, I felt like it could have been over in terms of Batman and Zatanna, like, closing the rift. But then come to find out, oh, something's come through the rift. This just feels a little stretched out and a little longer than it needs to be. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Vita Ayala. I think they're a really talented writer. This is probably my least favorite thing they've ever done. And not to say that it's bad, but it, it feels a little overwrought. Like it feels like it should have been wrapped up. And if not in the first two, then definitely in by, by this issue, you know, by part four, um, it feels like there's a lot of standing around with people talking and not a lot of stuff going on, not a lot of forward momentum for the, for the story. I'm also not a big fan of the Nicholas Samedja art in terms of the storytelling. It's confusing at times. I have a hard time understanding what's going on. Um, but the colors are great. Steve Wands does a great uh, job with the letter. So it might be another one where at the, at the end of it, when I get the, you know, whole thing together, uh, it's, it's greater than the sum of its parts. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, my favorite was the Batman and question crossover by Ryan Caddy, right? Answer wrong question. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. The question, having the suspicions that Batman is Bruce Wayne, but not letting on at all, not even letting us know as the readers, and then at the end, after working a case with Batman, pulls out his notebook and there it is. Batman is Bruce Wayne. And he like, you know, confirmed is to be trusted kind of thing. Like just wonderful. It really harkened back to the question series that started in 1986. There's references to that in this particular issue. The art by Giuseppe Camincoli is fantastic. I've seen Giuseppe do other things. Like uh, most recently he's been doing a lot of work on Undiscovered Country uh, that's written by Scott Snyder and, uh, and Charles soul. This to me shows that Cam and Coley's art looks much better with inks, especially Cam Smith inks, because the art is much more tactile as opposed to being more nebulous. And so I really appreciated this art. It felt very super heroic. I thought the colors by Sebastian Chang, very primary contributed to that as well. This new birds of prey memory lane, uh, I did enjoy, again, a very different lineup than you would expect to see. Katana is not a big stretch because we've seen, even though traditionally she's a member of the Outsiders, we've seen her as a member of the Birds of Prey in uh, in Rebirth. But we have this other character, the Ghost, is like this teenager who is anti-technology. I guess that's what it means to be a ghost because you're off the grid. Also, we have Lady Shiva. We have Miracle Molly. It's an interesting lineup uh, for sure, and I did enjoy it. Um, who this Noah Grave is that they're going after, who uh, apparently has the ability to get into people's minds and kind of make them lose themselves in the past. They're so busy looking at their memories and looking at past events that they can't see the forest for the trees. 
I re- I really enjoy it. Uh, I think I think that this is a, a team that can work. It's a team that doesn't necessarily get along. Shiva herself is even says at one point, we don't all have to agree ideologically to be on the same page and be on the same side. So that I think that sort of tension within the team could lead to a lot of uh, of interesting stories. And then the last story. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about it, this hounded story with uh, these different pets, with Ace the Bat Hound, different animals, I should say. Um, what I'll say about this, Carl, uh, or, uh, well, first, the Carl Mostar is fantastic. He's a wonderful storyteller, a lot of detail, a lot of little Easter eggs in the background. And it's not always easy to emote with animals or convey emotion with animals and he does a fantastic job. So I got to give him a lot of credit for that. Mark Russell's known for doing satire and, and kind of giving us stories that are a comment on uh, us as a society or politics or that sort of thing. He's done that throughout this series through the words of, of different characters in this one, particularly with this Russian mob boss, Mr. Tarkov, um, when he talks about sort of the, the futility of, of human beings and how they just destroy and Batman is, is almost a minor character in this story. Um, he's almost a plot device. And I, I really enjoy that because it gives Tarkov a chance to sort of give us this, this setup that I think at the end of the day, the payoff's going to be that these, these animals are the ones that are going to rescue Batman and show us that, Yes, there are things worth fighting for, and that goes even beyond just okay. We live on a planet with a human society, but it's an you know it's bigger than just humans, right? We have animals, and they need to be cared about too. So uh, there's a subtext going on here that's very subtle, which I really really uh, appreciate. So uh, I thought I, I'm in really enjoying that story as well. Uh, anyway, give us your breakdown on these, Rocky. Uh, well, uh, the first one, uh, Batman and Zatanna in Bound to Our Will. I, I really like the uh, I love the interplay between I love the interplay between uh, Batman and uh, Constantine. I thought it was uh, very well done. I, I love the fact too what uh, Vita Ayala has done so well is Batman hates magic. Batman. It's funny that Batman he really complains about magic. He hates magic even more than Superman hates magic. Of course, uh, Superman is vulnerable to magic, but Batman hates magic. And yet, what I love about it is. Batman would actually make a very good magician because Batman knows how Batman uses his detective skills in this story to actually impress even Constantine and Batman even <clears throat> at what point one point even intentionally knowing he's going to be transported out, out of the battle scene he he antagonizes the one I guess the one kid who's who's evil kid offspring and his mother there just so to take him off the playing field because he knows that he, in order to defeat them, he's going to have to take a different approach. And it's very, it's, it's very well done. It's, it's, I actually enjoy this more. I, I've, this is one of, uh, I believe in my view, one of Vita Al is sort of uh, better, better uh, storylines, to be honest. I didn't mind the art by Nicola Kizmajija. I'm butchering that, uh, that, uh, the, uh, the name, but in any event, I am curious to see how it's resolved. Uh, I love the, the interplay between Constantine and Batman and Zatanna. It's almost like a little bit of a triangle there because they've all slept with each other, except Constantine hasn't slept with Batman yet, but Hey, you know, in this day and age, just, you know, wait six months, maybe DC will, you know, have another acquisition and 
you know, they'll do another shock value thing. We'll have to wait and see. But in any event, let's have a little fun with that, shall we? Uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but uh, the, the next storyline dealing with uh, the Batman and the Question, I thought it was a uh, by uh, Ryan Cady. I thought that I thought it was I thought it was it was okay. It was it was actually my least favorite story, but it was well it was well done. It was a little bit uh, sort of cliche ending with. Uh, I thought it was predictable, but it worked. It was entertaining enough. The mo the story that interested me the most was the the Birds of Prey, the sort of this new Birds of Prey story dealing with uh, Lady Shiva. Now, a couple of things about Lady Shiva. I can I uh, this this to me feels like this was really thrown together at the at, at the last minute. This idea that uh, uh I'm frustrated because I'm trying to find the page, one of my pet peeves when I review these comics. In these anthologies, I absolutely hate when they don't have the title to the story on the front page. They have it at the end of the story. A stupid practice. Totally stupid. I would say to all writers that if you're writing a story and you have to put the title at the end of the story, uh, you you know, go back to formula. You know, just put a little bit more thought into the story and put it at the beginning. It, it, it works awful in these anthologies not having the title at the beginning of every story. It drives me crazy, but that's just my pet peeve. But in any event, Lady Shiva forming uh, for forming a group of women to, w with some agenda to go after some kid who can manipulate minds, that is so completely out of character for Lady Shiva. I don't I don't buy that for a second. Lady Shiva, I think that misses the point. Lady Shiva is a is is a character that ought to be shrouded in mystery. That ought to be somebody that has her own agenda. That has her own sort of machinations. She she does every. I, she's not a team player at all, Lady Shiva. There's nothing about Lady Shiva that cries out teamwork at all. So this does not fly with me at all. However, am I intrigued? Yes, I absolutely. I mean, Lady Shiva killed Katana at one point. I mean, stabbed her in that classic Outsiders issue, which I got two issues of by, two copies of by. It's awesome. But I mean, Katana and Lady Shiva have a, they, they don't like each other. And I don't believe for a second that they would team up together. But, I mean, I get it. The, you know, ideological difference. It doesn't mean we can't be teammates. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. If you've killed each other in the past, yes, it does. Lady Shiva's killed. I, I don't know. I realize that that happened maybe in a different iteration, but, I mean, of, of the multiverse. But it just seems a little uh, crazy to me. But, hey, man, Lady Shiva, Katana, uh, Miracle Molly. And this this new character, I mean, we definitely got, this is a very different eclectic group of women. Calling them birds of prey, well, they definitely know how to kick ass. Uh, but it just seems, I don't know why we need a different iteration of the birds of prey. Uh, I think that this is, is sort of missing the mark. This should be a brand new team. It should have a different name. Uh, I don't know, call them the Ravens or call them something else. That's probably taken. I don't know. But in any event, I am intrigued by it. But I, the last thing I want is to see Lady Shiva end up being somebody that, oh my God, now I respect all these women. And Lady Shiva is not your typical woman. Lady Shiva is a, is a tour de force in and of herself. She's a woman of mystery. She always has an agenda. She should be Ra's al Ghul level of mystery. She should be the almost the mysterious uh, yet powerful uh Wolverine of the DC universe minus the claws and with a little bit better handle on her temper. But uh, in any event, I digress. So, um, so 
But I'm intrigued to see where that goes. The the hound issue with the hound. I love what Mark Russell's doing with the this whole idea of the animals. Uh, these animals sort of essentially, ultimately, they're going to end up rescuing the Batman from this. I mean, basically, these criminals are, are selling Batman off to the highest bidder. And, and the only one that can really save Batman is ultimately going to be uh, the dog. The dog and the elephant and the bear and the chicken and... The squirrel and all these animals. This is a crazy story. If you'd have pitched this story to me, I'm sure when uh, Mark Russell first pitched this story, they probably looked at him and thought he was insane. But I mean, this story actually works. And I'm actually intrigued to see how this is going to end. How are these animals going to rescue Batman? I don't know. But I, I am intrigued. The, I, but I do share your sentiment that this has dragged on way too long. This is a this story is way too long, and sadly, it's in a in, it's in an anthology like this where, in order to to get every chapter of this, when you got to pay ten dollars, uh, it just seems foolish. I'm not, I don't know. I've, I I question the the decision of of the concept of Batman Urban Legends as an anthology in and of itself. I'm not generally a fan of them, but. It, this this is a story that these stories intrigue me, but I would have loved to have had a, a Lady Shiva story in her own comic, uh, as opposed to thrown into this Batman anthology because I fear that so much of this is going to be missed. But I don't know. Uh, well, you know, it's an open question about sales of Batman Urban Legends. The, perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps the positive note is that if the sales of this are okay, uh, maybe the best way to get attention to these stories and to to concepts like a new birds of prey is to put it in Batman urban legends. So hopefully more people are buying it because Batman's on the title that people will become interested in this new birds of prey. Uh, but in any event, uh, not bad, not bad for uh, an issue. My, I'm, I'm interested in birds of prey overall move, moving forward to see where that takes lady Shiva. Although I'm a little bit miffed with the, with the approach to Lady Shiva, but I'm kind of a biased fan when it comes to Lady Shiva because I've been a huge Cassandra Kane fan going back to the Kelly Puckett run back. Good Lord, that's going back a couple of decades. But in any event, let's move on. All right, Naomi number two. I should say Naomi season two, number two, from writers Brian Michael Bendis and David F. Walker. Jamal Campbell does the art. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, and yeah, Jamal Campbell, when I say art, colors as well. Um, there is a, a photo cover as the, um, with a, the, a picture of the actress who plays Naomi in the TV series as the, the variant. So I thought that was pretty cool. But anyway, you said you uh, were really enjoying this more than you necessarily thought. What did well, you think? Uh, subject to one uh, criticism, and, and I, I find it, I can't help but chuckle, but Brian Bendis, writer Brian Bendis, continues to believe that Kendra Saunders is Thanagarian. <laughs> and she's not. And the, a major plot point, a major plot point in this issue is that Naomi goes to Kendra Saunders to ask her questions about Thanagar. <laughs> which, which I find laughable because Kendra Saunders is not Thanagarian. She's not from Thanagar. She's not an expert on the Rand Thanagar War. And for those who think that, well, wait a minute, Kendra Saunders has all these uh, memories of all these past lives. Actually, she she doesn't. Uh, at the end of Hawkgirl issue 61, going back, getting knowledge of continuity, she was deprived of all the memories of Shara Hall going back. Uh, now, I guess you could say, well, maybe she's regained them. But in any event, uh, I guess we'll go with that, that, you know, Kendra Saunders now has the memories of all the Hawks, just like 
uh, Carter Hall does, although that's not quite in sync with continuity. But depending on which iteration you want to go with, and clearly we're going with the one where Kendra Saunders does in fact have a connection with Shara Hall and all the other past lives, then I guess she would know something about Thanagar. And interestingly enough, uh, she seems to know a lot about uh, Thanagar when uh, Naomi confronts or talks to um, Kendra Saunders about a ring that, that she had that Dee gave her. The, the mechanic in the garage where, where in the hometown where Naomi lives in is actually Thanagarian because Naomi's parents are, are, are Ranian, or rather her father is from Ran, and the... It was during a battle between Ran and Thanagar where her father and her mother got into a fight with D, a Thanagarian, and they ended up uh, sort of, I guess, stranded on on Earth. And and so they made they each made a life for themselves in this small town, and ultimately um, they they ended up sort of adopting Naomi, who is from this this alternate universe where the bad guy is this guy named Zambato, and that was revealed in in Volume One. And this here, this issue consists of a, of a great deal of dialogue again. Um, not a heck of a lot happens. There, what, if, if you're just going from volume one to volume two of Naomi, and you haven't read any other a- adventures of Naomi in the DC universe, you're going to be fine. And that's probably better. You're probably going to enjoy this more. Because if you have been following Naomi's adventures in the Justice League and in other, uh, and through Young Justice. This breezes over all of that and even frankly contradicts some of it, if I'm quite blunt. It doesn't really fit very well into all of that continuity-wise. Um, I mean, this issue, it feels as if Naomi is just getting to know Kendra Saunders. We are to believe that she never saw Kendra Saunders' face. She never saw Hot Girl's face. We are to believe that she. It, it, there's a scene here at the beginning where she's just met Black Canary for the first time. Well, I know as a fact she met Black Canary in Justice League. I remember the issue. She remembered all. She she met all the issue. She met all the members of the Justice League. But here it's like she's meeting them for the first time. She's having a conversation with the Adam and and, and Barry Allen, the Flash, and it's just it seems a little bit. So continuity wise, it's wonky. But I can let that go just to prop up Naomi to give her some agency here she wants to get to the mystery she wants to go back to Zambato she wants to she wants to basically figure out more about her origin and everything else and that's ultimately what she ends up doing she uh the mechanic the Thanagarian mechanic in her hometown D he sort of disappears and she follows a trail that ultimately leads her to Star Labs and she discovers that uh this this hawk person who this unknown hawk person that might be D broke into Star Labs and teleported away, presumably to to the Naomi's original home planet, and she goes to to explore and look at the portal, and this portal is still open. But then who pops out of the portal? But Cyborg at the end saying, "Close the portal now," and so that's the big mystery. It's I guess it's a little bit of a what surprises me about this issue is how much of the Justice League. Bendis has incorporated into Naomi, presumably to probably prop her up and give her, make her more important because she hasn't, she's, he hasn't, he's tried very hard, Bendis. He's tried, he's tried too hard to make Naomi important and he's failed, I think, quite spectacularly, if, I, if I'm honest. But at least with volume two, he's trying to prop her up 
And that's why he's sort of almost starting from scratch with Naomi in the Justice League. And I think it's probably going to work. Uh, he's playing fast and loose with continuity, but he always does. That's just the way the editors work at DC nowadays. Um, and that's just the way it is. But the story here, I think it fits well. It's 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 paced well enough. It's it's the same type of slow pacing, uh, but it's it's easy to follow, easy to understand. The dialogue is the dialogue is a little bit overwrought. That's his typical bendisms that are certainly in the comic, but it works. And I think if you're if you've been with Naomi this far, you're this is the same type of writing that you'd expect from Bendis. Uh, I don't. I'm not expecting much. We're already, this is already, you know, we're at issue two and she's, and nothing's happened. Like literally nothing's happened. We're at the end of issue two. She finally gets to a portal and she's still not even exploring her home world. And half this issue is her talking to the Justice League and then talking to her friends and then talking to her dad and then speculating. The first issue is her talking to her, her therapist. I mean, this is the exactly the type of stuff that, this is CW cringe. I mean, I mean, it's in other words, it's not for me, but I guess there are people out there that really embrace this type of storytelling. I ain't one of them. I guess I am because I loved it. <laughs> I mean, you say nothing's happened. A ton has happened. This is all about this girl. And, you know, we learned at the uh, in the first volume that her dad is from R Ran and, you know, this guy she tried to make friends with D is from Thanagar and you know, she, she herself is from a different, you know, reality or dimension or part of the multiverse or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff that's been thrown at her and she's immensely powerful. And if I have any complaint about where she is, and we've talked about this in the past, how long she's been around, but yet the, the creators, it's been tough to get Bendis' schedule and David Walker's schedule and Jamal Campbell's schedule lined up because if Naomi had been in a book month in month out for all this time, then she could really be at the power level she's at here. Cause as powerful as she was in volume one, it seems like she's leveled up and she's even more powerful here. So that's, that's part of the reason because it doesn't feel earned because we haven't gotten enough stories of her yet, but this is very much fa about family and about dealing with the ramifications of, of what she's learned because this volume two feels like you take a step back. This volume two is taking place before a lot of her um, appearances in Bendis' Justice League run. So uh, I love the fact that it's focused on family, how the dynamic has changed between her and her father, between her and her mother. She's trying to figure it out. Um, clearly, her powers have something to do with the, uh, the life force, uh, you know, like – the, the, when you're talking about the colors of the spectrum, because when she's manifesting her powers lately in her eyes, you see that the symbol that is um, associated with the, the white lanterns, which is, you know, life power or what have you. So uh, I find that to be interesting as well. Um, is it, is it perfect? No. Does it feel like it's a big giant epic story that they don't have enough room for? Yes. Does it feel like they could use smaller panels to get more story per issue? Yes, but then we would be shortchanging the amazing storytelling and fantastic art and colors of Jamal Campbell. And I certainly don't want that. Uh, I agree with Rocky about the Hawk, uh, the, the, the Hawk girl not, not being Danigarian and Bendis kind of missing the boat on that. But 
And I think for most casual DC fans, they're not going to realize that. So, um, you know, it, it is what it is, uh, but I'm really enjoying this and I haven't watched any of the TV show, but my hope is that this is similar enough in tone that anybody that comes over to try out uh, the Naomi comic who is enjoying the show will find this to be a relatively easy jumping on point, uh, you know, if you pick up issue one of this series. But uh, again, I, I couldn't say for sure. The art is fantastic. Uh, it truly is a yeah. joy to, to, to page through. It's beautiful. Yeah, Jamal Campbell's fantastically talented. Uh, okay, moving on, we have Batgirls number five, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad on story, Jorge Corona on art, Sarah Stern on colors, Becca Carey on letters. I don't really have a lot to say about this beyond the things I've said in the past. I don't think the Jorge Corona art really works for this. There's so much ink splatter on this, and I feel like it's because inherently his style feels a little juvenile. So it's like in order to bring in dark and gritty, we got to get some black ink splatter everywhere. And I, I don't really care for it. It feels really messy. Um, talking about characterization, you know, um, Rocky talked about it in terms of not uh, feeling like it was 100% accurate characterization for the characters in Batman Catwoman. And my answer to that is, well, it's Black Label. Well, this is not Black Label. <laughs> this is not a Cassandra Kane or a Barbara Gordon whose uh, characterization even lines up with the way they act in other books. Like this Barbara Gordon in this book acts wildly different from the way she acts in uh, – she acts much more juvenile in this book than she acts in uh, – or the char characterization is in Tom Taylor's Nightwing. So th to me, that's a problem. That being said, is this a fun book standing on its own, all alone by itself in a vacuum? Yeah, it's it's interesting enough. Like I said, I, I don't – I think if you want to go with Jorge Corona on art, okay, sure, no problem. Tone the story down just a little bit in terms of complexity uh, and, and really aim it at a younger audience and stop with the paint splatter and let it stand on its own, no problem. I have no problem with it. Or – Choose a different artist whose aesthetic is – whose style is a little more mature, uh, and so it doesn't come across as juvenile. And then, again, you don't have to worry about the paint splatter, and you can keep the story as complicated as you want. But I still think it needs to be out of continuity standing on its own. This book just does not feel in tone like it ties in with anything that's going on anywhere in the DC universe other than we have some remnants of the magistrate here that they they fight against but that could easily be changed um so it's not that this is a bad comic it just doesn't seem to fit in with aesthetically with anything else that's going on in the dcu right now so i don't know maybe you feel differently rocky what do you think uh well i i think i i agree with your general sentiment i will say that one of the things that uh, and i think it's jose corona's art that maybe doesn't quite Maybe it doesn't quite sit well with me in terms of of what of the of the story itself because I mean in this issue the three Batgirls like me I mean Cassandra Kane Stephanie Brown and Barbara Gordon all in their Batgirl there are three Batgirls that take out the Saints and it's it's supposed to come across as a sort of an epic scene that they they handily defeat the Saints and these Saints are actually quite. Uh, highly trained assassins that are uh, deceived by the seer to believe uh, that they're hired by the magistrate to uh, kill the Batgirls. 
and they of course easily defeat the Saints and almost too easily and but I never got the sense what I'm not I'm not getting the sense that Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane and, and Barbara Gordon I never got a sense of their skill set I never really got a sense that they were I never I, I just uh, and I think that's where if the art was maybe different I'd have a better appreciation because one thing that uh uh Corona's art does for me is that it uh it, it does feel like it's catering to a younger demographic it, it but yet at the same time it it uh, the 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 action sequences I I think would be I think sh- would should be a little bit more kinetic they they don't really feel a lot of times the colors seem to blur together and blend together and it it feels like a beautiful mess but at the same time I'm not really getting an appreciation of some of the some of the some of the actions and and, and the story progression as well as I, as I would like that the splatter doesn't bother me because it actually uh although perhaps perhaps indirectly the splatter if it was removed maybe it would make the the maybe that would be an issue I don't know but I something is a little bit off with it um the the, the story itself uh, a lot of great ideas here we got even the name of their their vehicle you know they got the vehicle called Bondo they call their vehicle Bondo and they they got even they even acquire a, a, a robotic dog called Fido Five. He's like a c- computer pet. They acquired that from the Saints, and they they got rid of the virus within it. And so now Barbara Gordon is using Fido Five as her pet uh, that she programs to help her fight crime and look for Seer elsewhere, or, or look for Charles Dante, or, or pardon me, look for the tutor uh, elsewhere in the city, and. The tutors revealed to be a character by the name of Cody Klein, uh, out of Gotham Academy, and they end up they end up uh, f- locating him or tracing him to Arkham Asylum. Uh, I thought it was kind of a, a kind of humorous that they they at least uh, I'll give Clunrad Becky Clunin and Michael W Conrad I'll give them credit for a- acknowledging that Arkham Tower now has replaced Arkham uh, Asylum, but apparently Arkham Asylum has not been torn down for some reason. It's still, it's just sitting there for anybody to just wander into, for any villain to just wander into. And, oh, I might as well make, if if you're a villain and you need a place to stay, just go to the abandoned Arkham Asylum. You know, it's, you know, it's, just go ahead and use that. And that's what, of course, uh, uh, I believe this this new character, um, I guess Spellbinder is there. Uh, (laughs) In any event, um, a lot of moving parts here. And I don't, I'm not, at the end, I'm not sure, uh, it looks as if the tutor has got control of, of of some of the people of Gotham City, because the tutor is utilizing, I guess, with his, his graffiti, uh, he with has a combination of fear gas, and people that read the graffiti come under his control, and meanwhile, their spellbinder, this, you know, spell, spellbinder shows up out of the blue to take on uh, Barbara Gordon, at the end, and I'm I'm not really sure why, uh, but um, yeah, it's it's different. Well, she goes oh. to his house. And I keep in mind that Spellbinder is an old college friend of hers, who she goes out of her way to constantly point out that she never dated. But she goes to his house to check on him because, yeah, the the other two Batgirls go to Arkham Asylum and they they find a connection between the tutor and uh, I think his name's Roger or something or other. And yeah. and he's like, wait, he's been lying to us. Don't go inside the house. Barbara's already gone inside the house. Yes, we find out. Which we we found out last issue. Spellbinder is behind the whole thing. Spellbinder is the one that is using the the tutor. So 
really, the big bad here is is Spellbinder. So how that plays out, we'll have to wait and see. But again, these are really mature themes and really complicated stories, which don't suit yeah. younger readers. But yet you have this Jorge Corona art, which looks very younger reader. You can put all the paint, all the ink splatter you want on it, Jorge. Your art still looks juvenile, which is fine, which is great. It worked perfectly when you were working with um, Scotty Young on, on Middle West. I will but, I will give Plunrad a compliment and say that, you know, at least they're owning their interpretation of the characters. Even though I'm not a fan of their interpretation of the characters, they are at least being consistent with their portrayal of the characters within their story. I actually like that they're they it's they they're very careful to make sure people exp people know what's going on. They explain Arkham Tower, they have editor's notes, they have even their way they tell a story. And they break the fourth wall a little bit at times. I mean, it, I actually kind of find it, it it's there, there's a fun element to it, which is probably catering to that age group again. But at the same time, it's all ages. And so I don't I don't mind it. It's just very different than what I'm accustomed to. And I, like I like you said, there's still an identity crisis with this. It's like it doesn't really know what it wants to cater to. It kind of wants to cater to everybody. It has adult themes, and yet it's kind of drawn for, for kids, and yet it kind of has sort of like a, a maybe a younger sort of like tongue-in-cheek humor to it, and then it deals with really adult sensibilities, and it's – so it's a, it's a hodgepodge of different tones and themes that it, it the, the fit isn't quite right, but, you know, it, it's heading somewhere, but it's it's not quite heading for me, but – I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, okay, moving on. Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 10. This is from writer Tom Taylor. Cian Torme is handling the art duties now. Federico Blee on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, what'd you think? Uh, sorry, I was... Uh... You want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Ah, uh, okay. Um, super, super, super annoying Lex Luthor moments of him just standing up there spouting out lies. It frustrates <laughs> me, and it frustrates me even more because we've seen this in our real life. Like it used to be in comics, you'd say, "Oh, you, you just you want that character to see their get their comeuppance," and that would never happen in reality. And it just reminds me of so much of the real world where people can just get on TV or stand in front of you know, millions of people and just out and out lie. Uh, it, uh, it just, it bothers me so much. So in terms of evoking an emotional reaction, I think Tom Taylor's hitting it uh, out of the park here. Um, the whole fallout of, uh, of John being framed for, uh, with the, the monster that was attacking Gotham or, or uh, Metropolis rather works really, really well. Wonderful moment with Lois showing up and, she never says it's the lasso of truth and she bluffs Luther into walking away and shows the power of, um, of Lois Lane and her intelligence. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, but maybe my favorite part and probably your favorite part too, Rocky is at the end, Batman shows up to say that, yeah, it appears that Lex Luthor and Henry Bendix are working together. You're not safe here anymore. I need to take you to a safe place. And Batman doesn't want anything to do with Jay Nakamura coming with them or or even watching them leave to see which direction they go or anything like that. And when they're on the, the bat plane, he tells Lois and John, Jay Nakamura is not to be trusted. So 
maybe it's the pink hair. Maybe Batman feels the same way that Rocky does about pink hair, uh, but it's definitely throwing a, a wrinkle and some tension and some drama in there. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, there's also what I suppose would be maybe a heartfelt moment for some people when John goes to kind of confess his sexuality to his mother and his mom's like, John, can I you know, see you in the kitchen in private? And then gives him a big hug. I love every single part of you. You know, I already knew. And John's like, well, you knew? She's like, well, I suspected I'm your mom, blah, blah, blah. Um, it didn't really land for me because I didn't really think it was a big deal one way or the other. But I suppose, I, you know, it's just it's part of the story that I can't really identify with because I'm not bisexual or homosexual. So I, I never had that worry. But I'm I'm glad that that's there and it's a moment because I think for somebody who did fear coming out to their parents, uh, it'll land with huge impact and huge emotion. So I'm glad that they that those readers, that, you know, I, I know there's people that pick up this comic for exactly that reason. They're seeing something of themselves in Superman, even though whether or not John has earned the right to be called Superman is a debate for another day. <laughs> Rocky and I have both are on the same side of. Um, but regardless of that, I'm glad that, you know, people who haven't been used to seeing themselves represented in a comic can, can get that moment. Um, it just didn't do anything for me, but I don't think it necessarily was supposed to do anything for me. It was a nice moment, but it wasn't, you know, super impactful. Uh, I, it's what I would expect from loving parents, you know, and as a parent, if my son or daughter came to me and, you know, needed to tell me that they were bisexual or homosexual, I would have the same reaction as Lois. So again, for that reason, it's not, it wasn't really a big deal for me. So uh, anyway, the last thing I'll mention is the colors, the colors throughout this series. Uh, I, I think it's been Frederico Bleed the entire time. Uh, apologies to the other colorists. I might be forgetting if that's not the case, but the colors are very primary and very bright, including the pink hair of Jay Nakamura. And it very much suits um, the tone of the story, despite some, darker uh, themes here with Clark being accused of murder and what, or uh, uh, John rather being accused of murder and whatnot. It's a Superman comic. It's a superhero comic. It should be brightly colored. So uh, what are your thoughts on the issue? Uh, uh, I echo most of your uh, comments. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more critical in terms of the pacing. I, I would have really, uh, I thought this was, uh, this sort of dragged on this, I, the the whole the whole press conferencing with Lex Luthor trying to suggest that John Kent was a, a murderer, that's just uh, kind of heavy handed to me. I don't think Lex Luthor would be that stupid to try to move <laughs> that because uh, I don't think anybody would 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 actually believe that. But I uh, the the whole focus on the I might I agree with you. I might agree with you if we didn't have people on TV saying drink bleach and yeah, you know. <laughs> 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 You no, can't. No, no, that's a good point. If anything, the, world the last, like. yeah, the last three years have taught me that you can never underestimate the stupidity of a human. Yeah. Even Lex Luthor. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, that's true. I just, uh, again, I just. I, I get I, your I, point. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're right. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I certainly. We, we live in a crazy world, and, um, but you know, again, again, with with the Lex Luthor thing. The the favorite my my favorite aspect of it was with Lois Lane holding up the lasso, but even that, I you know it was even mentioned that uh, Jay Nakamura even stated you know Lex Luthor is the smartest guy in the world and Lois said well how did that work for him today 
You know, he wasn't yeah, too smart. That's a great line. Well, it it was, but I I also think I don't think Lex would have fallen for that for at all. I'm sure Lex Luthor knows where Wonder Woman is right now, and she's got her lasso with her, and I'm sure he probably figured that out. But I just find it, you know, uh, also, uh, you know, again, I don't I don't want <laughs> it, to. It was a good moment. It was a fun moment, and I don't want to I don't want to uh, sound overly critical of it. But it's just Lex Luthor is right that if if you know. Why doesn't Lois Lane walk around with a magic lasso and ask all of the people she interviews to touch the lasso when she asks some questions? I mean, I mean, it is, it is. Because all the people aren't standing up there lying about her son. Well, who says, well, okay, who says he's lying? I mean, I'm just saying, if you want to be, if you want to be. She knows he's lying. uh, You would do the uh, same to protect your child. But he's not going to, he's not going to play that game. And, uh. And and of course I, I I get it she did that and it was to good effect and and it and it did work and uh, you can bet dollars to donuts I think it would be funnier if in future issues all the reporters uh, you know painted a painted a gold took some gold paint and painted a rope yeah but every not all the reporters know Wonder Woman personally that's what sold the moment because <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't oh, have been yeah. that far fetched it, it wouldn't have been that far fetched for her to have had Wonder Woman's lasso. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe next issue she'll show up with a with you know Doctor Fate's helmet, and maybe she'll show up with a you know you know I mean she's going to show up with all kinds of things with with an element. Oh, no, she should show up. What she should actually show up with Wonder Woman's lasso once, <laughs> and then every time after that she wouldn't have to because she's you know proven the concept. Yeah, yeah, but in any event, I'm I'm just I'm having a little bit of fun at Tom Taylor's expense here. This was this was a fun this this was it did have its fun moments, uh, and as as usual though, uh, I I think it is worth pointing out that there is this. I thought the pacing. I don't think we needed it. Was it was literally? I'm going to count the pages here. It was one, two, three, four, five. Six, six pages of John Kent flying around the world helping people just to make the point that even though he helps people, they still doubt him because he might be a killer. And that, that the power and, the, and that the, the deception that you have to work through and that, you know, even though that the world might think he's a killer, he's still going to rise above them and help them. And that was the point to be made. I just feel like it's, I don't know if you needed six pages to do that. Um, again, I just this story is just it's snails pacing and and but the, again the saving grace and I've said this before that it's the character moments that Tom Taylor nails because everybody's going to be talking about the Lois Lane holding up the, the 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 lasso moment and every one of Tom Taylor's issues has those key character moments. But if you sit back and we talk about what's the progression of the story here, again, not much happens. Uh, I'm still uncomfortable a little bit with the idea of Lois Lane joining this organization called The Truth. She hasn't joined yet. I hope she doesn't. I just think it's uncomfortable. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think I, – I, I, I still think that Jay Nakamura – there was a character named Nakamura who was a member of Leviathan – uh, Tom Taylor, when we when he was asked on Twitter if there was any relationship between Brian Bendis's Nakamura character in who was a female character, an older female Oriental character in 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 Checkmate Leviathan, uh, he says that it wasn't. It's just a coincidence. So, but I thought, but I'm thinking now maybe that maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe Batman 
uh, doesn't trust Jay Nakamura because maybe he, maybe his mother really does work for Leviathan or used to work for Leviathan. Who knows? So that's, you know, that's potential there. Uh, I love that Batman's suspicious. I love that. I love the fact that he doesn't trust Jay Nakamura. And um, as for as for the moment with Lois Lane, of course you expect Lois Lane to accept her son. I mean, she's going to love him no matter what. That's what parents do. She's a, she's a, she's a, uh, uh, frankly, I, I, I've actually, in the past, I've criticized Lois Lane under Bendis as being a, a terrible mother. Um, but she's, this is actually, finally, she's shown some signs of being a terrific mother. So good for you, Lois, accepting your son. Uh, for exactly who he is. So that was a wonderful moment, a good scene, and that was played right. And um, yeah, now now I want Saturn Girl to come from the 31st century and, you know, win John's heart, heart and break that heart of that pink-haired idiot that I don't like. Um, I'm with Batman. Jay Nakamura should be cast aside. You cannot trust Jay Nakamura. So good for Batman. <laughs> that's uh, because that's of the pink me. hair what what what's it's your reason of pink hair i don't know you know what bts my wife loves bts and one of the guys always seems to dye his hair pink in all the videos and i said that's the only guy i don't like on bts so and what is it about jay nakamura i mean we only know what we've read in the comic we don't we're not privy to what batman knows well, look, what is I it w- that- i want i my favorite issue of legion of superheroes was the one with the cover uh written by bendis and it just had saturn girl kissing john kent Saturn Girl and John Kent were meant to be together, and I just, you know, hey man. Okay, so so I, 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 I have a bias. I'm on Team Saturn Girl, not Team J. That's all I got to say. Okay, so you you could. It's not that he's bisexual. If oh, if no, Jay well, Nakamura, if if Jay Nakamura was Jane Nakamura and a female, you would dislike her because she's not Saturn Girl. Well, probably, probably, yeah, because I I love I love Saturn Girl. Saturn girls. You just ship. You just ship that. You just want. When I say ship, this is what this. My daughter explained this to me. Ship means you put them together in a relationship. That's right. You ship Saturn girl and and John Kent. I I do. Yes, I do ship. So that's what what I mean. Yes, exactly. I shipped. I guess I don't know the modern day vernacular. Yes, I ship. I ship Saturn girl and. And John Kent. I absolutely yeah. do. And so it doesn't matter who John Kent is with. If it's not Saturn Girl, you're not going to like that character. Well, if it's not Saturn Girl, I'm going to criticize whoever else it is. And it's Jay Nakamura. Yeah. And, and i got to find something to criticize about Jay. And he's got pink hair. So it's his own pink fault. Hair, yeah. Goddamn pink hair. <laughs> How dare he? Uh, okay. Last, last thing I'll say about this. And I won't go so far as to say that Lex Luthor is overused like the way the Joker is. And maybe it's just because – there isn't as much Superman content at DC as there is Batman content. But that being said, it's been an awful long time since Lex Lex Luthor has been taken off the table in terms of at some point you, we want to see these villains get their comeuppance at some point. I want to see Lex Luthor in jail. I want him off the you know page for six months to a year, maybe longer where he's in jail and he's got caught for something and he's paying the price and he won't ever serve as much time as he deserves, uh, you know, knowing as we all do that he probably deserves to spend the rest of his life in some horrible gulag or the phantom zone or something. But it especially was brought back to me when I saw him standing up there, just out and out lying about John Kent. And don't get me wrong. I'm still of the opinion that John Kent has not earned the right to be called Superman. I don't know where I stand. Do I like him as a character? Yes. Do I like him as Superman? No. 
am I liking the series from Tom Taylor? For the most part, yes. But man, do I want to see somebody who just stands up there, bald face lie, like Luther, just pay the price, man. Like that would be even cathartic for me in the year 2022 after everything we've gone through in the last <laughs> whatever, since 2016, basically. So it would be nice, Tom Taylor, if you're listening. Can we throw his ass in jail for a year? It would be yeah. nice. Uh, all right. Moving on, we have Suicide Squad Blaze. It's another black label book. This is issue number two. It's from writer Simon Spurrier. Aaron Campbell does the art. Jordi Belair on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about this. I didn't enjoy it as much as the first issue. The first issue felt new and refreshing, um, but this felt like it fell back into some old tropes with Amanda Waller just – being Amanda Waller, barking at people, being super annoying, and the angst that these members of this Suicide Squad Blaze are feeling is not so much different than the angst that the regular Suicide Squad Blaze or Suicide Squad members feel. Granted, these members are going to burn out a lot faster. Better to burn out than fade away, I suppose. The Aaron Campbell art is very, very visceral, um, sometimes too much so in terms of being ethereal when we get the big bad on the page or there's one of the particular members of suicide squad blade blaze who's just this pink smear on the page basically so am i enjoying this yes was it as good as the first issue no am i glad it's going to be over in three issues very much so um because we still haven't gotten a lot of answers to a lot of the questions of who is this evil character who was is so powerful he can defeat Superman apparently um, so I question whether this needed to be three issues maybe it could have been done in two um, and wait way way too much Amanda Waller way too much Amanda Waller in this issue <laughs> which just about any Amanda Waller is too much but man she's in this issue a lot just being as as two dimensional as ever so <laughs> I that's actually it. liked her no, in you, this yeah, issue yeah, you, you, I know you enjoyed it a lot more than I did, so fire away. Well, uh, well, first, uh, and maybe it's because I just enjoyed this issue so much. I actually got more out of this issue. We actually were, we were told a lot of the, in this issue that was interesting. And boy, oh boy, this, is, this issue had a lot of sex and a lot of violence. I mean, by the way, we discovered that this creature that they are after, that the suicide blaze is after is actually was actually uh subject to the same experiments that the blaze members of the suicide squad were subjected to and this this alien this is actually uh this creature has a a cosmic tapeworm it is infected with a cosmic tapeworm that is almost quantum in nature and it's a parasite that basically poops superpower so this cosmic t tapeworm sort of links itself to the human to the human and to us as humans, and then when it when it shits itself, the the poop that it shits out causes us to manifest superpowers. I mean, literally, that's the story. I mean, I mean, Simon Spurrier, the writer, he's really used his imagination on this one. And uh, frankly, uh, they need to take out this this creature 
and but and this cosmic tapeworm unfortunately literally rips the spine out of Superman. I mean, it's horrible what happens to Superman. And there's an empathic relationship between this creature that was created in the same process that led to the creation of the other Suicide Squad members through that Blaze process. And there's an empathic linkage so that as Superman is being literally eviscerated and disemboweled and half his brains ripped out and his spine ripped out, I mean, the one character, Mike, uh, Mike Van Zandt and Tanya, they're having sex and they, they have a vision of Superman essentially being killed. And it's a horrible thing. And, and all the members who, of, of the Suicide Squad, of, of, of the Blaze, have images of what happened to Superman. But they don't tell Amanda Waller this. And, and meanwhile, uh, of course, you know, the Justice League, particularly Flash, is, is terribly upset at, uh, you know, at, at the media and, you know, they've lost Superman. So Batman, Wonder Woman and the Flash ultimately end up going to Iceland where this creature makes its last stand and it wants to take off. He wants to, you know, it's a, it wants to take on it, anybody. And this creature ultimately ends up, it looks like killing the entire Justice League, Wonder Woman, Flash, Batman. I mean, they're taken off the playing field here. And what's fascinating is Oh, another member of the Suicide Squad, Blaze. I mean, Captain Boomerang bites the dust. Also, another character by the name of Lucille, who is infected with the Blaze, bites the dust. And every time one of them dies, uh, the the remaining members who are subjected to the Blaze experiment, Mike and Tanya, get more powerful. Uh, even uh, King Shark ultimately ends up dying. King Shark ends up eating an, um, one of the Blaze Suicide Squad members, and then he becomes empowered. So these Blaze powers are actually transferable to others. Meanwhile, Amanda Waller comes across like a complete bitch. She doesn't care about anybody. She she talks under her breath. She doesn't even care that Superman's off the playing field or the Justice League. They're kind of annoyances. She basically utilizes, uses the Justice League. You know, I mean, even when, I mean, she literally calls Superman. She says to Superman, I'll grow up, you unbelievable cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> stop pretending that you're smart and just, you know, go and try to stop this thing. And she doesn't believe that Superman will. And of course, Superman doesn't. And, uh, but it is a, uh, it is a, just a remarkably, uh, a brutal and harsh Amanda Waller that is commanding this Blaze team saying, look, we need you to go in here. And ultimately near the end of this story, they, she wants to send them in to get a, a biological sample. First, she sends them in to kill it. Well, that doesn't work. And then the Justice League goes in, they fail, Superman fails, and not, they want to find some biological, they want to find some biological uh, sample of this creature so they can figure out a way to kill it. Because what's, one of the questions that they don't have an answer to is this, this cosmic tapeworm that they've utilized to create the, the Blaze Suicide Squad members, well, as, as more of them die... The other ones become empowered, but they become closer to death as well. So the question is, why does this creature not die? Why doesn't this creature just explode like the other Blaze members do? And that's because this creature is likely another, is a different species other than human. So the question is, is this creature actually a metahuman? And is this creature possibly another hero of the DC universe or a villain that's been taken over by this cosmic tapeworm? That's the big question. And I'm fascinated by it. Is it Martian Manhunter? I'm, I have all these theories, but I, I don't know. I'm thinking it's Martian Manhunter because he can form different things. But this, cos this cosmic creature 
there's actually two of them now. And uh, there's a hilarious scene where, where uh, basically, uh, uh, well, there's, there's two funny scenes. There's a funny scene where, where, where King shark ends up eating one of the, one of the suicide squad members that is actually exploding. And then there's another scene uh, which, because this is a, this is a long comic. There's another scene where Peacemaker himself. I'm trying to find it here. Peacemaker himself finds a he he manages to rip a pubic hair off the creature and says and actually brags about it. I mean, it's it's kind of a ridiculous scene. Uh, oh my God! There, that's the one thing. There's so many pages to go through here. There it is. I got it for peace, justice in the American way. I have seized the enemy pube. He says. <laughs> And that's right yeah, before he gets, he gets... Then he gets zapped. Yeah, and then he gets zapped right through the heart and taken off the playing field. It's just, it's... I don't know. I found this to be hilarious, dark humor, uh, sex, violence, everything you should expect from the Suicide Squad. And Amanda Waller that is a brutal, heartless bitch that just wants to get the job done and always uh, has an agenda of some kind. Uh, again, I know that we've been bombarded with Suicide Squad stuff between the between the the streaming service Peacemaker, the Suicide Squad movie, and multiple uh, covers cover homages by DC, and of course multiple Suicide Squad bl- Black Label series. But this one, I'm I'm really enjoying. So uh, <laughs> I I can't wait to see how this ends. <laughs> yeah, I could not even read the third issue and be fine. Like it's just not not resonating with me. So. Uh, all right, one more book. I didn't read it, uh, but we do have one more uh, title, Sandman Universe. It's a black label book, uh, Nightmare Country, issue number one from writer James Tynan IV. The art is by Lysandro Etherin. Uh, I think she does the colors as well. No, sorry, the colors are by Patricio Del Pish. Uh, and then letters by Simon Bolin. So, uh, anything you want to add about this, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I, I uh, James Tynion wrote wrote this, uh, and that's the only reason why I I read it because I'm not normally I don't normally read a lot of Sandman to be quite blunt, uh, but I I thought this was uh, quite interesting. Now, this centers around a character called uh, the Corinthian. Now, for readers of Sandman, that's going to be uh, my understanding is that that's going to sound familiar to fans of Sandman, and that's that's great. Uh, Corinthian, he has the power of of dreams, uh, and this centers around a character by the name of Madison Flynn. She's a twenty year old New Yorker artist, and she uh, she has having these weird nightmares and these dreams, and uh, and the Corinthian is a, he's sort of like a living embodiment of a nightmare, and he lives within a place called the the dreaming, uh, which we've all heard of. The dreaming being the place where the where various members of Sandman universe live. Uh, and uh, this Corinthian character created was created by the King of Dreams and he, he stalks people in, in, our, in their sleep. And he's, a, he's the dark mirror and he's the tormentor of humanity. And this Corinthian character has, he's drawn by this uh, Madison Flynn character as having teeth for eyes. And, you know, and, and then he basically... His eyes are portals to the soul, and he, he sort of eats your eyes. And uh, and this Corinthian character, he writes the memories that people have 
uh, in his in a notebook made from the dreams of a bookbinder about her father's made in her father's skin, and it's it's and there's these other two characters called the Agony and the Ecstasy, Mister Agony and Mister Ecstasy, and these these characters essentially they they believe that dreams are a trap, and they 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 have an agenda, and they go after various people that have particular kinds of dreams and ultimately they they want to go after this Madison Flynn because this Madison Flynn is drawing pictures of the Corinthian and she's having disturbing dreams about she's dreaming about wanting to do evil things or bad things with her her schoolhood bully and I'm not really sure what the connection is there but this Mr. Agony and Ecstasy they believe that dreams are a trap and that uh, they they want to kill they want to kill these dreams and these Mr. Agony and Mr. Ecstasy, they're dressed up like businessmen and they, they believe that dreams give people false, false hope and the dreams are guilty of comforting and coddling humanity and dreams are little fictions that satisfy man's hunger for meaning without providing anything tangible. And the only thing tangible is what you can touch and feel as Mr. Agony shows as he rips a man apart uh, viscerally with, with hatred and anger. And, and again, he, he, he likes the real world tangibility of pain and suffering versus the, the escapism of what a dream can provide and the hope that dream can provide to humanity. At least that's what I'm getting out of it. So it's, it's, it's Tinian playing with these themes and for an opening issue, I'm actually, uh, I'm intrigued by it. Uh, the art is a little bit, uh, maybe the art, the art is maybe an acquired taste a little bit. There's this, almost like this, uh, it reminds me of Jabba the Hutt. There's this, there's this character, it looks like Jabba the Hutt that has, instead of teeth for eyes, it has like, like tentacles for eyes and it shows up at various parts in the book and I'm not really sure what's going on. It's very, you can tell it's Sandman-y in terms of its presentation. And uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the Corinthian does or is, or if he's a bad guy or a good guy. He sounds like a bad guy, and yet it's this agony and ecstasy, which I'm not sure if these are new characters or not. Uh, there's a, speculators are suggesting that in Hellblazer number, I think, six, Hellblazer number 16 or something with the first appearance of agony and ecstasy, that maybe these are, different agony and ecstasies i don't know but in any event potential first appearance for sandman fans um i'm intrigued i can see the appeal of uh sandman uh, as as a concept beautiful cover the uh some the the alternate covers on this are are really fantastic unfortunately we, we weren't given those as preview copies but there's uh the one in the one there's a one in 25 a one in 50 and there's a one in 100 issue that has the the death uh death holding a skull with the teeth for eyes, which I think is the one to get. It's the one in 100. It's probably going to cost $100 to buy. So good luck trying to acquire that to speculators. But I I, I think this is probably worth picking up if you're a Sandman fan. Yeah, exactly, which I'm not <laughs> Sandman fan. And so yeah. I didn't pick it up, didn't read it. So yeah. anyway, uh, that's all the regular books that are coming out. Uh, in terms of collections, we do have uh, a few that are out this week. Uh, so there's a New Gods Book 2 Advent of Darkness trade paperback, which collects New Gods 15 through 28. So if you're a big New Gods fan, you may want to be looking to pick that up. 
we also have a, uh, a collection that I know Rocky is going to be all over. Uh, we have the, tra <laughs> the trade paperback for Future State of Gotham issue uh, or vo volume number one. So if you're looking to get caught up on Future State Gotham, uh, that is out this week as well uh, in trade. Also, the Dark Knight's Death Metal trade paperback, uh, another one that Rocky is going to be first in line for, also hit stands. <laughs> and then finally, Gotham Central gets an omnibus hardcover. Uh, and that's the very that, famous. That I might take. That, I'd be interested yeah. in Ed that. Ed Baker, Greg Rucka, Michael Lark. Um, if you're a big fan of the Gotham TV show, it's something you should look into uh, into picking up. So uh, that does it for DC this week. Uh, pretty solid week. If you had to pick one book, Rocky, book of the week, what's it going to be? Uh, well, I would have to go with uh, Flashpoint Beyond uh, be just because it's it's Jeff John Goodness. So that's my first choice. And my second choice, I got to go with Suicide Squad Blaze, man. <laughs> it's just, it was just fun. Yeah, I probably have to go with Flashpoint Beyond as well, even though I'm not a huge fan of Eduardo Riso's style of art. Uh, and I think my runner-up would be Naomi. I really enjoyed that uh, that issue. So anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. Don't forget to go check out our separate uh, issue for Flash – or separate uh, spotlight episode for Flashpoint Beyond if you want to hear our thoughts on that. Also, we did a separate episode for Trial of the Amazons with Wonder Woman 786. So – uh, if you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure you head over to your favorite podcasting app or platform. Subscribe to the Comic Source there so you don't miss out on any of our audio-only content. Conversely, if you are listening to us audio-only from our podcast feed, be sure you head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel. It's Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Subscribe to the channel, ring that notification bell, like this video. That way you know when new content comes out. So uh, we appreciate you guys joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.